hola, hola, my name is Ricardo, I am the host of the Lucha Jovers podcast here in the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. We are a Spanish-speaking show dedicated to discussing and analyzing pro wrestling from all across the world. From AW to CMLL, we talk about American wrestling, Japanese wrestling, and of course, Lucha Libre. If something big happened in the pro wrestling world, we will talk about it. So if you know Spanish or have a friend that knows Spanish or want to practice your Lucha Libre pronunciations, go listen to the Lucha Jovers podcast right here in the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Nos vemos por ahí. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast. I am your host, as always, Jesse Collings. And joining me for a record fourth appearance on the show, four appearances now, passing Joe Lanza for the most featured guest on the history of the show. So uh, Joe will be demanding to come back on the show to, to tie things up. Uh, it's Adam Berger. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great, Jesse. Really excited to uh, dig into this uh, Hall of Fame ballot this year. A lot of... Uh... A lot of interesting additions and uh, changes since last year. Yeah, I know. And we did a very similar episode to this one uh, last year. And there's going to be some of the candidates. Obviously, a lot of the candidates are the same as last year. Um, but not only do we have some new additional candidates, there are some candidates who, you know, as active wrestlers have kind of, I think, had significant changes to their cases um, in terms of what they've accomplished over the last, you know, 365 days since we were last kind of doing this exercise. And I know that some people understandably have a problem voting for like, don't want to see like active wrestlers on the ballot, uh, kind of for that very reason that they're still kind of building their legend. But one of the interesting things I like about this is that uh, like perspectives can wildly change over the last, you know, year or so. And some people can have stronger cases. And on the rare occasions, I think we can see some people end up having weaker cases. Um let me let me ask you this. Is there anyone in the Hall of Fame right now that jumps out to you as somebody that you like think got voted in too early and probably wouldn't get voted in today if they were on the ballot? Ooh, that's a good question. Getting voted in today. Um okay. Well, I'm not I'm I'm just gonna mention this name, but obviously I'm I don't want to get into it for obvious reasons. But uh Chris Benoit would not get in today if he was if he was on the ballot well he did um, get now dave didn't dave do a recall vote though like after he, yeah, the incident he did he did do a recall vote um like shortly after uh i don't know i think perspectives have changed a bit on that over time and i i think just being closer to it uh when it happened it was an obviously a very kind of emotional emotionally charged and kind of confusing time uh, for everybody, but I think now with some distance uh, since then, it's kind of obvious that yeah, you definitely like he, he shouldn't. It's tough to honor someone, although I understand there's a CTE component uh, potentially to it as well. But it's still like you know something that heinous. It's it's difficult to you know honor someone mm -hmm. um, and kind of you know put them as uh, on a pedestal uh, with you know something like that that overshadows like all the positive things that they ever did. Yeah, and there are other wrestlers who are in the Hall of Fame, um, not quite as, uh, as you know, public, as you know, yes. as the Chris Benoit murder case uh, was, but other wrestlers who's probably have had personal issues that 
we would think of much differently in 2023 than we did when they were wrestlers, let alone when they were time to be voted on to the Hall of Fame. Um, but I was thinking more like less like uh, more like as far as how they fit the criteria. Um, I know like Shinsuke yeah, Nakamura comes up a lot, as a lot of people say, as someone that probably was pretty fortunate to be voted in when he was. Um, I do think with that being said, that Nakamura would still be a pretty strong candidate if he was on the ballot today. Um, yeah, he's, I mean, man, he was so awesome. <laughs> and I understand like his peak and especially in terms of drawing and maybe some of his work peak as well as a little bit shorter than some of his contemporaries, but he was so great. He, he was so, so great. And I'm not quite as down on his North American venture. Um, as other people are, part of that's because, I mean, if you kind of think about it, he's he's kind of the most successful, like, male Japanese wrestler in the history of, you know, North American wrestling, because, um, I mean, Great Muda had a had a tremendous run in, you know, WCW, NWA, but it was, it was pretty short, um, and he wasn't pushed as hard, he wasn't really pushed as hard as Nakamura was for his first, like, couple of years um, in NXT and his first year on the main roster. So I do think that is kind of historically significant. And just even though, you know, <laughs> he retired, he basically like retired while he was still active. <laughs> he's still technically wrestling, but he's not really wrestling outside of the rare occasions where uh, he's motivated. What are you talking but about, Adam? He, he's main evented the last two PLEs. Oh, it's so, it's so sad. Uh, I did really actually enjoy his uh, Noah match with um, uh, Muda. Yeah, like towards the end, that that was a good. Like I thought that was actually a good match, which is nothing short of a miracle. Um, and like man, I really missed this guy. <laughs> but I yeah, guess like, it, was, it was nice. Yeah, to he see got a, he got a good match out of Buddha, who like needed to be pushed in a wheelchair to the ring, basically. Yes, yes. It's nice. It was nice to see that Shinsuke uh, at least one last time. Um, and then you know he went back into his uh, active retirement. But no, I don't. I don't have a problem with him being in. I don't. Honestly, I don't really have a problem with anyone who's got it. I feel like everyone who's gotten in uh, has a very credible case. Uh, there's no one that I look at and say like, oh, like they, you know, they shouldn't have been in now. I think one thing that does jump out at me was, you know, Ted DiBiase being one of the inaugural 96 um, class members. I think maybe he might have had a little bit of a difficult time. Uh, getting in if he was just on the ballot and up for debate. I think he probably would have got in eventually, but, you know, it might have taken him a little while, might not have gotten in uh, right away. Yeah, you think about, like, how some people like Paul Orndorff have struggled to get in, and a lot of people would kind of view them as, as relatively similar candidates, certainly contemporaries of the time. Um, you know, with Shinsuke, I do think it's also, like, kind of in some ways that people always say, like, they use that as a case of why you shouldn't vote in active talent. But I almost think that it's the opposite in some ways, where you can argue that people voting uh, on Shinsuke right when he was eligible, but when he was at his peak, um, was really important because we've now been kind of several years removed from that. And we've had this kind of, um, for the most part, negative view on his last you know six or seven years of his wrestling career and that kind of overshadows where he was at his peak. And I think the context there is, is important um, that at his peak, people voted him in. Um, and as we get further and further away from that peak and we see more of his WWE career takes up a bigger and bigger chunk of his career, his, you know, we lose that perspective. Um, and, and even Ted DiBiase is probably a case of the sense of like, 
you know, in 1996, when he was the inaugural class, a lot more people, I know Dave just put him in, but like a lot more people remembered, you know, not, not only his, you know, watching his WWF run in real time, but his, his time in, in, in uh, St. Louis and in uh, Mid-South and like his, his run as a baby face in the early eighties and his, you know, reputation as a worker and things like that were much stronger than they would be now. Um, so it's kind of a, a push and pull in terms of like evaluating someone's career. Yeah, for for sure, for sure. And in terms of people like being on too early, like one of the, kind of a funny example for that, um, like oh, we can't put them on. It's it's too early. Like Kota Ibushi getting it, getting voted in a, a year after he had last wrestled, and he added absolutely nothing to his case whatsoever. He was just injured and out and didn't wrestle. But I guess people are like, oh, he might be done. Um, what do I think about this? Yeah, no, he's great. Uh, obvious hall of famer let's let, let's vote him in now so like that was always a little bit confusing to me it's like he he added nothing but why are you voting for him this year when you didn't last year i guess it's just and it's just because some people just don't want to vote for active wrestlers for some reason but that's just an example i like to point out how that at least me personally i find that approach and kind of arbitrary rule to be a little silly um especially within that context yeah and he um his case is like, you know, he's wrestled this year and you could argue that his case is worse. Like he would do, he he would not get in this year. It would be, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess the way I would analyze that is myself, like I wouldn't say his case is worse because he still accomplished everything that he accomplished. But from the perspective of, hey, he's back now and he's not like having very good matches and he's like kind of a shell of what he used to be. Um, yeah, that's not really going to motivate anybody. He's not really adding anything. So that shouldn't really motivate anybody to vote for him who wouldn't have voted for him before. Uh, I, I just bring this up to point out more like, hey, if you voted him in, you know, in 2022 when he went in, you probably should have been voting for him in 2021, really. Yeah, you know, like I'm kind of, in general, I'm of the belief that like someone hits a point in their career where they reach some sort of, you know, figurative uh, total of accomplishment and prestige where it's really hard to then lose that amount to become like not a Hall of Famer. Like you can't really play your way out of the Hall of Fame. Um, if like, like, like I'll use like Miguel Cabrera as an example, like Miguel Cabrera had like a really bad last four or five years of his career, but he already was in the Hall of Fame. Nobody's really going to be like, I'm not voting for Miguel Cabrera because he was bad for the last four or five years of his career. He had already attained a level of of Hall of Fame run. Um, and a lot of wrestlers that are in the Hall of Fame are have had really bad runs at the end of their careers. <laughs> yes, yes. They're, I mean, especially with wrestling, like yeah. these guys like never retire and just keep going. Well, Ric Flair last year, I saw something recently that was, that was hilarious to me. It's like Ric Flair is the member of evolution with the most recent match. Oh yeah, that's right. Cause Randy Orton's uh, might not, yeah. is, it hasn't wrestled yes. in a very long time. And obviously, he... yeah. Yeah, wow. he might Rick. I mean, I mean, Randy Orton could. He's had some, you know. Hopefully, he gets healthy and uh, you know c- comes back and is able to wrestle again. But if he ends up retiring, that would be very funny. That Ric Flair would have the the last match of anybody in Evolution. It could happen. It could happen. Yeah. Well, like 
you know, Randy Orton, who's on the ballot this year, he could pull a, a Kota Ibushi and enhance his case despite not wrestling a single match. With the new voting changes, I don't anticipate that, but it's uh, it's possible. Stranger things mm-hmm. have happened. So uh, let's let's get into a, kind of our discussion here. Um, we I kind of asked you to just kind of pick five different intriguing candidates on the ballot this year. I have five of my own. I wonder if some of them will intersect, but I'll let you go first. Pick someone on the ballot you think has a really not necessarily you're going to vote for that person, but someone that kind of has an intriguing case that you want to discuss. All right. I, I just want to get the I just want to get this first person out of the way. Uh, it's you know one of the more polarizing um, candidates on the ballot, but it's it is someone who I am definitely going to be voting for. It's, and it's I Lord Alfred Bootlears. Oh man, you're spoiling my big finish. No. Spoiling my <laughs> big finish. But uh, no, I want to talk about the Young Bucks. Um, and I didn't even take a lot of notes for this because I don't think uh, I, I'd have to. But uh, yeah, the Young Bucks just seem like such obvious Hall of Fame uh, candidates uh, to me. You know, they're absolutely critical to the formation of AEW um, for historical significance. Even before that, just the level that they promoted both indie wrestling and New Japan in the U.S. I don't know if people realize just how critical they were to New Japan's expansion um, into the U.S. Because, like early 2010s, I, like New Japan did a, they did like a, they came to the U.S. and did like some shows in the tri-state area. I think it was with Jersey All Pro. Yeah, and like I, I, I think MV, MVP was was on them, and like they did not do well. Like there was, you know, like, I mean, they did good for like indie shows, but absolutely nothing like, you know, we would think of New Japan over the last, you know, like eight years or so um, doing shows in North America. And it really like Bullet Club was a big part of that, obviously. But, you know, the Young Bucks and BTE, it was it was uh, it made, I guess, entering New Japan and from a fan perspective, it made it more relatable. Um, and a little bit more accessible. Some of that was technology, you know, with New Japan. There's also them, you know, promoting it on Ring of Honor and helping Nobara grow essentially too. Because um, Ring of Honor really starts to take off, you know, after the Young Bucks uh, join Bullet Club and, you know, AJ Styles uh, leaves TN Bullet Club working a little bit too. So, yeah, and you know they set ROH's attendance record at the time uh, against the Hardys, um, one of those uh, WrestleMania weekends, and then also pretty critical in terms of some of those early, um, you know, All In, and then also the early uh, first few AEW pay per views. You know, there are some, some very prime matches there. So I'll pause there to see what uh, what your thoughts are. Oh, and I didn't even mention. <laughs> the best tag team in the world for like a decade straight um or at least one of the best five uh which is you know other than one other tag team that's on the ballot that we'll probably talk about at some point uh pretty unprecedented um time period of just being like you know regarded as the absolute best team in the world or at worst uh top five so that's that's also significant historically in addition to just you know all the uh, tremendous matches that they've had over that time period yeah, like I actually had the Young Bucks written down on my list and then I scribbled them out and replaced them with something else just because for me personally, it's like I don't really see much of a debate in why they shouldn't be in. Um, I think like just on in-ring alone, they should totally be in. Um, but to touch on some of the points that you made, um, 
in terms of like importance and quality, one thing that they probably don't get enough credit for is uh, their um, importance to kind of reinvigorating tag team wrestling in the United States. Um, if you go back and look at like who was winning best tag team in like the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards before the Young Bucks really took off, it's like the Miz and John Morrison and kind of these WWE acts that are just talent kind of thrown together. And the idea of there being like a real tag team like there was during other eras of of, of American wrestling really had kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, and the Young Bucks really helped uh, promote tag team wrestling in the united states uh to an enormous degree both with their work at new japan and on the indies and when AEW formed AEW was formed with the idea that the tag team titles are going to be really important titles and we're gonna you know main event shows with them and you can even see like that have an influence on wwe i don't think it's a coincidence that the wwe tag team championships are probably a little bit more valuable because the young bucks I think you look at a team like DIY in NXT, um, those guys were influenced by the Young Bucks for sure. And they kind of helped start tag team wrestling in, in NXT with the FTR um, as well, kind of took that whole scene to another level. And I think they're really historically significant for that. Um, and I, I'd also like to, 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 I'd wonder like of all these, these in different indies, you mentioned that they have the ROH attendance record. Um, I'd like to look at like all these different indies that they were working and wonder how many of them they have the attendance record for. Um, because one thing I was looking at earlier this year, oh, it was a couple of weeks ago, um, was looking at like the Young Bucks like in like 2015 when they were really at their peak doing as many indies as they possibly could. Because towards the end of their indie run, they kind of basically just do Ring of Honor, PWG, and New Japan because um, they were running so frequently. But kind of a few years before that, they're all over the place. They're doing pretty much every indie in the country. They're going to the UK on a regular basis. They went down to South America. I mean, they were all over the place. And I'd really be interested in knowing like how many attendance figures they have for that because not only were they on the all these shows and in demand, not only were they often in the main events and in the best match on the show – the events themselves were often named about the Young Bucks. There's an event that I believe um, 2A, uh, 2AW in, uh, or maybe it was C4 Wrestling. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's it's definitely not 2AW. It's C4 Wrestling, I think, in um, in in uh, Canada. And they have a, a show title. And the sh it was a show that was run on like a random day of the month. And it, this little, literally the show title is, this is the only day we could get the Young Bucks. Um, but you just go to all of these different indies, you know, having the, they have, they have their, the name of their show would be like super kick party or like the buck stops here or something like that. Like they were not only main event stars, but they were like in a whole other stratosphere compared to everyone else on the indies. Um, and that's before we get into them and like, you know, starting AEW and their influence on new Japan in the United States. And I think that's kind of an understated part of their their career is just they really um you know carried indie wrestling for a long time and, and and brought it to heights that i don't think anyone ever anticipated they would ever see um and i mean how many young buck clone tag teams have you seen over the years adam they seem to be everywhere 
There's there's quite a few. And you didn't even mention, and I guess I forgot to mention this too, but they got their merch was so popular, they got a national distribution deal for merchandise from Hot Topic, which is you know, maybe now, like in comparison to like the what AEW grew into and their profile, like maybe now that doesn't seem like such a big deal, but like a few years, but just a few years before that, that like it would seem impossible. Like, wait, like non WWE wrestlers or like non, I guess when TNA, maybe TNA, you thought maybe they could get a, you know, a merch distribution deal somewhere when they were at their peak. But like, wait, like non WWE or TNA wrestlers, like just like indie wrestlers could get their merch in a national distributor. That seems impossible and insane to even think that, but it happened. Uh, It's just, it's crazy that they were able to accomplish these things from, especially if you just think about like where indie wrestling was a few years before that. Uh, I, sh- I like to share this story, but I remember seeing going to a Shikara show um, in uh, New England bef- uh, shortly after the Young Bucks had been released um, from TNA. And I remember going through like, you know, just the, the merch table where all the wrestlers were selling like eight by tens and d- different things. And I just remember thinking, man, these guys are so talented. They just had like the best match on this show, but I don't think it's going to work out for them. And it's really sad. And I couldn't be happier uh, to be wrong about that. What Shikara show was it? Where was it? I'm curious. Oh, it was, it was in uh, South Portland, Maine at this, it was like, they ran at this like community um, center. It was called the Strive Center. I don't even know why I remember that, but it was, it was a building called the Strive Center. And I remember it so well because the young bucks were heels and they were working, um, it was an eight-man tag, and they were working with uh, the heartthrobs. Do you remember the heartthrobs from, like, late 2000s WWE? Yeah. If not, I do. Okay. So they were, they were, and they were like the little against, bow ties, right? That was the dicks. The heartthrobs were slightly, oh, the dicks were the ones who were, like, the Chippendales. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's something. Um, but I also remember the heartthrobs. They came out with like roses and stuff like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they were. Uh, so it was of course they were, they were tag team partners with the Young Bucks at a Chikara show. <laughs> yes, but they're the they're all on the same team and they're wrestling. Like I can't remember exactly who, but you know some of the masked uh, Ch- Chikara guys. It might have been like the Shard or Jigsaw or something like that. But. um yeah, so they're they're. I just remember they're like, you know, they're going through their spots and stuff, and the baby faces are getting the better of them. And uh, no matter what they do or who's in the ring, the heels, you know, they just uh, keep getting the worst end of it. And then uh, they're like, "All right, we got a plan." And then they tried to work the plan. It did not work. They got all got kicked out of the ring again. And then I can't remember who it was, but one of them noticed there was a whiteboard on the wall of, of the building they like walk through the crowd go to the whiteboard grab a marker start drawing on the whiteboard and then they like, put their hands together and they say new plan and then they go back in the ring and got the advantage and the new plan worked and then the i missed Chikara. started getting new plan it was it was awesome i miss i mean i do miss Chikara. i understand why it's not around anymore but i do miss that 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 level of innocence the um the other thing with them you mentioned like the hot topic deal like the story with that i remember was um hot topic had a deal with wwe and they some of their hot topic executives were in 
WrestleMania, I want to say it was the, one of the new, I think it was WrestleMania 30, like the New Orleans WrestleMania. And they were walking around. And of course, that was like towards the peak of like WrestleMania weekend being a big deal. And the uh, Hot Topic executive saw all these people wearing these Bullet Club shirts. And so they went to WWE and they said, uh, yo, you know, we saw everyone wearing these Bullet Club shirts. How come you guys haven't given us any of those for our store? And somebody had to t- awkwardly tell them that, in fact, the Bullet Club shirts are not a WWE thing. So they went out and found uh, the Young Bucks. And that's how they ended up getting the Bullet Club merch in their stores, which is because of that WrestleMania weekend. Um, which, again, just kind of an, an incredible bar to, to, to be hit. But, yeah, I, I totally think that I think they should waltz in. And if they don't, I think we have a serious problem with the voting body. Um that should be addressed. Uh, another someone I had on my list, and you hinted at them earlier, is the Briscoes. Um, who, when we say all these things about the Young Bucks being the best tag team for the last, you know, twenty years, when we talk about, you know, the Young Bucks carrying tag team wrestling, like I said, you do have to add into that conversation the Briscoes because, for an extremely long period of time, they were an incredible tag team, consistently having great matches um for you know ring of honor for the company that they were in they were hugely popular um and they definitely are i believe this is the first year they're on the ballot obviously that's you know related to to jay's tragic death um which i believe was back in january of this year um and it it is a um you know they're going to be an interesting team I, i don't see them getting in Um, but I have read and and listened to like a lot of passioned, uh, you know, advocacy for them because, and I think a big reason for that is because I do think that they were kind of underappreciated, uh, you know, over the last decade or so, because I think their durability and their consistency was taken for granted. Um, but what do you think about the Briscoes as candidates? Yeah, the Briscoes, man, they were so great. They were so great for so long. And it really is tragic that, I mean, Jay, on a human level, like, you know, Jay dying with his, you know, having so many kids in his family is is, is tragic, you know, in and of itself. But, you know, from, from a wrestling fan perspective, it's also, you know, disappointing because it seemed like they were, like as good or better than they had ever been before. And they were finally starting to get uh, appreciation from a wider audience because AEW had purchased Ring of Honor and, you know, we're promoting, um, you know, the Ring of Honor pay-per-views that uh, they would wrestle on. Um, In terms of where they rank, I have, I mean, I have the Young Bucks ahead of them uh, by quite a bit for um, several reasons. One of the things that really held the Briscoes back was they stayed in Ring of Honor for so long. And I think for the benefit of their careers, they really stayed in Ring of Honor too long. Because uh, what kind of happened with them, like, and you can look at like the Observer Awards for this, which I like to use as a reference point. You know, they're not necessarily end-all be-all, but they're a good reference point to kind of remind me of what was going on at different times. And they're rated as like a top five tag team, you know, like 
2006, um, you know, when they come back after, um, I can't remember which one, one of them had a motorcycle accident that kept them out most of 2005, but they come back in 2006 and through 2012, like they're consistently, you know, top five tag team and 07, they have that amazing feud with um, Steen and Generico and Ring of Honor. And they, they actually win the Tag Team of Year Award um, that year. Then in you know 2013, Jay starts to get his uh, singles push, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015. So they're still tagging, but they're not tagging as much. And the focus is more on Jay as a single. And he's, he's tremendous, he's, he's awesome uh, during that period. But you know, the focus is more on his singles career uh, than his tag career. And then at that point, like once Jay kind of had the singles run, it seemed like they really needed to move on and, you know, go somewhere new because they had been in Ring of Honor for so long, they couldn't, like, there was nothing new left to do with them. So they were around and they were having great matches with, you know, like the Young Bucks and all different kinds of teams, but they weren't really pushed, even with a Ring of Honor, they weren't necessarily pushed and their work didn't really resonate as much as like the Young Bucks did um, at the same time period. And it's not necessarily because of talent. It's just they were in one place for so long. The promotion, like they had to find different things to do with them. They couldn't prioritize them as much. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, Jay, you know, made those tweets that he did that really, you know, really held back their careers for a very long time. Um, and also I think they, they had some other personal decisions because they were always on their farm. And I think that might've, um, you know, working on their farm, I think that might've prevented them from working more in new Japan, uh, potentially, which also, uh, maybe could have helped their careers. They were always good, very good, excellent when they were, went to new Japan and were in there, but they were very limited in terms of how often, uh, or how frequent they went. So I think really that's kind of the reason why they're not um, necessarily as heralded as the Young Bucks are, which I do think holds them back a bit from a, a historical significance standpoint. But with that said, um, you know, even though I might not think like they have like, you know, 20 Hall of Fame years, like some other people um, might, I still think they have like over a decade at least of, you know, performing at a clear Hall of Fame level, which I think is more than enough to uh, meet the in-ring criteria. And they are uh, a team that I'm uh, very strongly considering voting for this year. Yeah, I think they definitely didn't travel at the way you mentioned like New Japan, but they didn't even go to like PWG all that much or other indies kind of outside of Ring of Honor. They were really more just like, where can we drive to on the weekends and everything else, you know, they're not going to do. And that probably hurt them in addition to, you know, Jay's tweets probably closing some doors for them at the national level. Um, I have a hard time. Like, I, I really like the Briscoes. I'd like the Briscoes to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I'd like the Briscoes to be recognized, but I don't really know if they, I would put them in the criteria. I think, I don't really think they have much of a drawing case. No. Uh, even though I think that they were of the more popular Ring of Honor acts of their time, but that's a very low um, cap. Um, the uh, I'd have to see like a lot of data that shows like, oh, when they headlined the show Ring of Honor, it did X amount more people and like a lot of data that convinced me that they would be hitting that. Um, the, uh, you know, historical significance, I don't really think they have that strong of a, a case there either. 
So we're really looking at a, poor, a, a pure kind of in-ring work case. And I really like their matches, and they were around for a long time. But when I think of like all of the wrestling acts, both tag teams and singles wrestlers of the last 20 years, where would I put the Briscoes? Um, would I put? I probably wouldn't put them in like the top 25, I guess, if I were to rank them. Um, I never really have, have, have done that kind of exercise, but, um, I can name many, many wrestlers or acts that I would rate higher than the Briscoes, maybe not necessarily having the longevity of the Briscoes, but certainly for just talking about memorable matches that I saw. Um, and so it's kind of hard for me to vote for a pure work rate case when I don't think that they're one of the absolute best workers of their era even though they were obviously very good and i liked them a lot i just don't really see them as a hall of fame team even though um i would love for them to be recognized as such i just don't think they fit the criteria for this hall of fame uh the way that maybe i would want them to yeah i can well i've mean, for similar reservations like they do they don't have a drawing case and i don't think they're I don't think their work, because it, it wasn't all, like when you think of the Briscoes, obviously, you think of their best stuff. Like I brought up their Steam and Generico feud, um, you know, obviously that series that they had with FTR uh, last year, you know, one feud of the year. And, you know, they had multiple matches placed very highly uh, in match of the year. They had matches, you know, placed highly in match of the year um, in other years uh, as as well. So they they were they were excellent they were very good, but you know I kind of feel a little I don't feel like they're overwhelming candidates the way other people do um, just because again as I kind of brought up a little bit earlier they had like probably you know they took a few years where the the tag team just wasn't a priority because the priority was Jay Singles career and then they had a few years after that too where you know they're just like they're around and they're doing good work but they're not it's not really resonating people aren't saying like oh this Briscoe brothers match is like the best thing of the year. But again, you know, with all that said, I think if you do look at just like the volume of great matches that they had and compare that to other tag teams that are already in the hall of fame um, or that are on the ballot right now, I mean, I think the Young Bucks might be, at least in terms of the U.S., I think the Young Bucks might be the only team that has more, like, great matches, um, you know, really high-end matches, too, than the Briscoes. So I do think that gives them a bit of a historical significance case um, as well. Again, I don't think it's, so it's that combined with the work. It's like their work was so good for so long um, in a way that makes them historical outliers uh, as a tag team. So I do think that gives them a bit of historical significance case. And yeah, that's why I'm you know strongly considering uh, voting for them. I have one spot left on my modern US Canada ballot. And right now I think they're they're probably gonna be the ones that get it. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I, I hear so much about like, um, you know, it's okay compare them to other tag teams compare them to you know they were the best tag one of the best tag teams for 20 years um i don't really differentiate between singles acts and tag teams in terms of my ballot um because it doesn't seem like the hall of fame is set up for that like i i use the same criteria for tag teams as i do for singles wrestlers 
And so I'd have to be convinced that they would fit the criteria of a singles wrestler. Um, if I'm comparing them to say like CM Punk, um, you know, another candidate on the modern U.S. ballot, I would be like, okay, who has better matches? Who has better historical significance? Who is a bigger draw? Um, and CM Punk, for instance, is that is that is not a comparable, uh, a favorable comparison to the Briscoes, certainly for historical significance and, and drawing power. Um, just to use an example. Um, so like, I think sometimes their argument gets framed as they're like one of the best tag teams, but that's not how the Hall of Fame works. We should be talking about whether they're one of the best like wrestling acts. I think sometimes that conversation gets lost. Yeah. I don't know. I think people, some people interpret that a little bit differently because tag, you know, you brought up how the young buck, well, it's part of your argument for the young bucks, right? You brought up how they, part of their historical significance was elevating tag team wrestling and the appreciation uh, for tag team wrestling. Cause it is, it is a different style of wrestling. It does add variety uh, to, you know, various promotions uh, and shows. So I don't, I don't necessarily agree that it, it's the criteria is necessarily one and the same. I mean, the, I'll just put it this way, I guess. The criteria is the same in terms of work and drawing. I, I, drawing, I completely agree with that. Like it has to be the same. But I do think when you're comparing like historical significance, I do think there can be some things that's carved out a little bit for tag teams that wouldn't necessarily apply to singles wrestlers. Um, just because it's, you know, you need to have a partner <laughs> in order to be in a tag team, which is, you know, kind of makes it uh, a, a bit a bit unique and a, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. All right, give me someone else that you have on your list. All right, you just mentioned him. So let's just, let's just dive right into it. CM Punk. Um, by the way, speaking of people who haven't done much to change their case from the prior year, uh, they're still on the ballot. But I get, maybe you might feel differently um, about this. But I voted for Punk um, last year. Uh, I feel like he's, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how once somebody crosses the line, um, you know, in, ter- in terms of, hey, they've reached a certain level, they've, they meet the criteria, they are like a Hall of Fame act, um, you know, it t- it would take something, you know, kind of egregious to potentially like uh, move them back, you know, to, to move backwards. And with Punk, I feel like, you know, I voted for him last year. I feel like he was already um, over the line. I mean, in terms of, I feel like he meets all the criteria. Like he has, he's definitely historically significant um, as a worker. And, you know, I, everybody looks at this a little bit differently. I like to, um, I do consider like promos um, a little bit part of the the in-ring performance criteria um, as yeah, well, we, uh, we, in addition to use, matches. I'm totally guilty of this, of using like in-ring as as shorthand for cat- the first category, but it's really overall wrestling performance. Yeah, um, yeah. There's someone yeah, else and, on this ballot that I think that is, you know, deserving a mention in regards to, to okay. that specific distinction, but... Um, yeah, like I think people focus too much on like, well, how many great matches did CM Punk have, which is not necessarily relevant to the case. Now he did have some great matches, but obviously as a promo and as a as a compelling figure, I think it'd be hard to deny he doesn't check that first box. Yeah, and what again, just using the Observer Awards as a reference point. I mean. And what I like to do with this is I just track like the major awards, like top five placements. And my thought behind that is, 
you know, if you use top 10, there's some stuff that might not necessarily be top 10 that can kind of just sneak in there, you know, but if you're top five, you were definitely like in the top 10 for, for that year. Right. Um, so like if you, as far back as 2003, like he's, he comes in number five for best interview, number two for feud of the year um, with Raven. Oh uh, four, you know, he has the feud of the number three feud of the year with Samoa Joe, number five, best interview, number three match of the year for that was Samoa Joe. 2005, he's the, rated as the second best interview for, um, you know, his feud against the entire Ring of Honor roster, which he did years later in real life in AEW. Uh, funny how his his uh, art imitated life and his life imitated his art. But, yeah. and, you know, that goes and, all... And that those, are really, those are really impressive because he's doing that in a Ring of Honor that doesn't necessarily have super wide distribution, you know, in the early mid-2000s. Yeah. It's very different than, like, Ring of Honor 10 years later. Certainly different than anyone that's in WWE or AEW now. Yes. Yeah, most, most definitely. And, I mean, he's... Even as recently as last year, I mean, uh, during his comeback, you know, 21, 22, like in 2021, he's, he has the number four feud of the year, I think for his feud with Eddie Kingston, he's rated the number three best interview, he's voted number one for most charismatic, last year, number two feud of the year for his feud with MJF, which I think that his program with MJF is historically great, and one of like, the best examples of how to perfectly execute a pro wrestling feud. Just absolutely incredible. Um, you know, number three, best interview, number four, most charismatic uh, last year as well. This year, he only wrestled a couple months, so didn't really add a whole lot. But and obviously he took like seven years off um, in between. But I mean, if you're looking at someone who was one of the best, you know, it's, you know, one of the best in the world in certain aspects of wrestling in 2003, and then still one of the best in the world in various aspects of wrestling in 2022. That's, you know, that's pretty incredible uh, from a work standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really disagree with any of the punk, any of the case against punk in terms of him meeting the criteria. Um my only hesitation with Punk is that I genuinely believe that over the last year or so, he's done much more harm than good uh, in the pro wrestling industry. And I kind of want to see how that shakes out before I'm casting any ballots for him. I always find an excuse to not vote for him. That's my excuse this year. <laughs> I, I can understand that from, so I can understand that from like reducing his positive historical significance, right? Because, um, like previous, you know, let's before his AEW exit went the way it did, he was regarded well historically because he really did change things in WWE in terms right. of who they perceived could be a top act and be a star. People don't remember this exactly, or they associate these two guys together, but Brian Danielson didn't get hired in WWE until after CM Punk had started main eventing. Um, cause you know, punk gets, he wins the world title in like 08 has a short run that doesn't go very well, but then, in, you know, the summer of 09, he's feuding with Jeff Hardy, um, that one feud of the year. And, you know, he's the champion for like, like a good, like five months, you know, he's like solidly in the main event programs for the second half of 2009. And then, you know, Brian gets, uh, hired in, you know, early 2010, they make the deal with him in like 2009. So I, like, they probably would have hired Brian Danielson anyway, but, people don't remember this either. They put him on TV immediately. Like he just went to NXT. He didn't go to their developmental system for a year, the way CM Punk did. They just put him on TV right away in NXT. And then, I mean, he had a very short, um, 
uh, it didn't take him that long to be on the main roster uh, after that. And then he got fired, they brought him back. But, you know, so uh, Punk does have some influence there. And then obviously, you know, opens the door a lot for the people that they hired at NXT and the people they pushed on the main roster after that. Um, yeah, so I, I get, so I can see how that is like a positive historical significance. But then if you think like, oh man, this guy screwed up AEW and potentially like, you know, uh, you know, they haven't gotten their new TV deal yet. You know, is that, does that like offset the good he did from a historical significance standpoint? I can understand that um, aspect of it, but I mean, if he meets the drawing criteria, which I can get into that if you want to, but I think I said most of it last year. Um, so I don't want to repeat myself too much, but if I think he meets the drawing criteria pretty clearly, and then also meets the work criteria pretty clearly. So even if his historical significance is just, in a positive manner you just feel like it's net zero i feel like he's still worth voting for this year oh yeah absolutely um my my guy i got here um is shima and one of the interesting things i think about shima in terms of uh as a candidate and i i look at this japanese uh section of the ballot this year and so the japanese ballot we have you know, three, you can only vote for three people maximum, um, which is not a lot. Um, and there's not, um, we, in recent years, we've seen a lot of people kind of clear off the ballot. Um, you know, Kazushika Okada went in on his first ballot. Uh, last year, the Holy Demon Army went in, you know, as uh, technically on their first ballot, but Taui had been a staple on the ballot, you know, for years prior to that. Um, Kodabushi finally got in, Tetsuya Naito finally got in. So we kind of cleared out uh the people that i feel like have like obvious cases to be in and what we're left with is a series of wrestlers who to me almost all of them you can make a a good case that they should be in and a lot of them are work-based right uh shingo takagi tomohiro ishii miko Satamura, um and shima uh hayabusa you can throw in there yoshiaki fujiwara you can throw in there um as these talent that i think are all kind of close relatively speaking in terms of their cases and it's almost like you know it's who's your favorite style of wrestling and what kind of wrestling do you appreciate the most whose career did you follow the closest and that's kind of someone who's going to stand out to you um and shima i find really interesting because for two reasons. The first is a lot of people who are big Shima supporters, and I know Case Lowe has done a lot of work and Mike Spears has done a lot of work and kind of advocacy for Shima on the Voice of Wrestling website, is that Shima is like very historically significant because he helped popularize the Dragon Gate style and Luchurusu style of pro wrestling, um, not only in Japan, but in the United States. Um, he was very proactive in... Uh, seeing american wrestling talents and bringing them to dragon gate where they would learn a lot young bucks being a perfect example you can also look at talent like ricochet um you, you can look at a guy like Pac. um these talent who kind of he immediately recognized and helped foster their careers and some of those people especially young bucks went on to become hugely successful uh wrestling wrestlers so in in he has this kind of um really strong historical significance that maybe the, uh, a lot of the other candidates in Japan don't have. And maybe is that enough to separate the, him? Um, 
you know, you can, his work is always subjective. I think everyone will pretty much agree that Shima is a very good wrestler. I think opinions will kind of vary on how good he was, but at the baseline, he's, he's, no one is going to criticize his in-ring work. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, you know, the importance of Dragon Gate as a company, um, you know, for a long time, the second most popular um, wrestling company in Japan, but only behind New Japan, um, kind of broke a lot of stereotypes in terms of what could be successful as Japanese pro wrestling in terms of being able to push, you know, kind of an exclusively junior heavyweight roster. Um, and there really isn't anyone from Dragon Gate that's in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Um, the exception, like Ultimo Dragon is in it, um, but he'd kind of be in it regardless of, of you know, his impact on Dragon Gate. Uh, we look at kind of who would be the best candidate from Dragon Gate over the last 20 years to kind of represent that company and that style of wrestling in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Uh, and I think most people would agree it's probably Shima. So I think I, I'm really um, kind of going back and forth on who my three votes are going to be in Japan, but I'm starting to lean towards him as being one of them because I think he has a lot going for him beyond just being a very good wrestler. Yeah. Uh, Shima is someone that I would vote for if I had more votes, but I don't have more votes. It's, and as you said, it's only three. Um, so he, he's not one of my top three, but I certainly understand the case um, and I respect it. And I think the only difference is, I guess, why I would prioritize other candidates over him. Um, your, your point about work, like Shima is great. He was a great wrestler for a very long time. Um, I just, I don't think he's on the same level as Shingo Takagi or Tomohiro Ishii, um, who are two candidates that I think are just two of the absolute best wrestlers ever. And if I needed to pick a body of work to represent, you know, from Japan, uh, to represent, you know, a certain period of time over the last like 20 years, um, I would pick both of them uh, before I picked him. But that's that's kind of the main difference, I guess I would say, um, honestly. And then there's, I have another candidate that I want to talk about as well. But uh, yeah, Shima is someone, um, that I do, I respect the case. I appreciate it. Um, I just have, you know, three other candidates that I like a bit more. Yeah, I think, and cutting down Japan to just three candidates, I think is really difficult. Um, I understand the logic Dave is using in terms of, uh, you know, kind of restricting votes per category as opposed to just giving someone, you know, X amount of votes that they can distribute however they want. Um, you can make the case that I would, you can then advocate for some like bad Japanese candidates to get added to the ballot. So like uh, you can use more votes um, on the candidates that you do like. It's kind of an interesting pair. Like I think there's like, I'll say like right now, like in the historical US category, I think there's a lot of people that probably shouldn't be on the ballot. Um, but since they're there, you're not allowed to vote for eight people, um, which is a lot to me because um, I'm not going to use nearly eight votes in that category. Um, and kind of the opposite is true for Japan, where there really aren't that many candidates on there. And I think that the candidates that are on there um, are kind of hard to separate. Um, and yeah. it's, it's, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because I do think like, okay, I, I am definitely going to use all three of my votes. And how am I going to allocate those three votes? Um, 
Is there strategic voting going to be involved? I think this, I think this Japan thing, I think it's going to be super, super hard for anyone to get in because of that, because I, I would be surprised if anyone gets voted in from Japan. Yeah, I would too. And I think your point earlier, like the reason for that is the the most prominent candidates all went in recently. Like right. you said, Okada went in immediately. Uh, Naito and Ibushi um, both went in last year. Holy Demon Army uh, went in immediately uh, as they should have. And now it's uh, candidates that aren't from you know, that weren't headliners in New Japan, All Japan, or, yeah, I guess, I guess basically it's just candidates who weren't headliners uh, consistently in New Japan or All Japan, um, which actually brings me to my next candidate. Yeah, uh, go for it. If uh, you're in to that. So I do want to, I want to talk about Hayabusa. And I've written a, I've written a column uh, about Hayabusa. I also wrote last year, I wrote a, a summary this year. And one of the things I like to bring up with Hayabusa is a lot of the stuff you just said about Shima um, also applies to Hayabusa. It's just Hayabusa was, he came earlier. His career was shorter, but he came earlier. So I know a lot of people are a little bit down on his work. Like when they, they watch his matches, they don't think he's, you know, qu quite as smooth and his high flying isn't necessarily as crisp as, you know, the, the best wrestlers from Dragon Gate. Um, but to me, that is a little bit like, you know, you and I are both basketball fans, right? So it's a little bit like, you know, uh, comparing Larry Bird to LeBron James and being like, well, Larry Bird sucks. <laughs> it's like, you know, obviously uh, a lot of things in terms of athleticism, uh, training techniques, um, just, you know, taking care of their health, um, but also just like game strategy and uh uh, you know, analytics feed into that a lot, which isn't necessarily the case in wrestling. But would, yeah. anyway, there's would, a lot. I'm of... going to push back on your bird comparison because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to switch. I'm going to say like comparing Elgin Baylor to LeBron James. Sure, like, sure. Because okay. Larry Bird in his time was not known as a particularly athletic player, um, but like Elgin Baylor is like this kind of transcendent, uh, like athletic scoring wing type player. Uh, and if you watch like tape of him now and compare him to like LeBron or like Zion Williamson or Giannis, he'd be like, well, that's not that impressive. But it's like, well, this guy's literally innovating like in real time here. Sure, um, sure. I meant more in terms of like effectiveness overall for basketball. But yeah, that's Elgin Baylor, much better comparison from uh, from an athleticism standpoint. And so I guess if you look at like just the, I mean, Hayabusa invented the Phoenix Splash. Um, that move didn't exist before he did it. So anytime you see Seth Rollins or Kota Ibushi or anyone do a Phoenix Splash, that's because it's a move he invented. Um, same thing with the uh, uh, Falconero Suplex. He invented that as well. And I mean, Will Ospreay last year at the uh, historic crossover show um, between New Japan and Stardom, he dressed up in full Hayabusa gear. Um, to do a tribute. And then after he talked about how he asked permission from Hayabusa's daughter and got Hayabusa's original mask maker to allow him to, uh, to you know, to make him a new mask and a, a new outfit. Um, and he felt compelled to do that tribute because, you know, that was someone who heavily influenced uh, the way he wrestles and, got, you know, got him 
uh, you know, partially interested in wrestling and interested in Japanese wrestling. And that's someone who he emulates his style uh, to, to some degree. So, and, and it's not, and Hayabusa was also, I mean, he was an influence on a lot of the wrestlers in Dragon Gate um, too, directly. Um, in my column, I, you know, reference a lot of different, um, several, you know, a handful of Dragon Gate wrestlers um, who, you know, actually, you know, met with Hayabusa, talked with him, like trained with him. Um, and we're influenced by him. So like a lot of the things you bring up with Shima, I think they also apply to Hayabusa to, to some degree, obviously his career was much shorter, but he was also like just incredibly influential, not just in Japan, but, or the UK, but in the US as well. Just yeah, a like lot you, of like, you know, you mentioned Will Ospreay. tape trading and DVDs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned Will Ospreay, who's not like a Japanese, you know, grew up in, in the UK watching Hayabusa on YouTube, I'm sure. Um, and wanted to emulate him and you know wills for my money the best wrestler in the world and has been for a few years um and you consider that he's very very similar to hayabusa it's, it's very obvious that he was heavily influenced by him and i don't know like i i think about his work i was watching some of his matches like a couple of weeks ago it was like last week um you know and pre- usually during hall of fame season i like to you know brush up on, on certain guys that i feel like i haven't watched in a long time or something like that and there's, there's a great YouTube match from FMW. I believe it's from 1996. It's Hayabusa versus Taka Michinoku. And it really is oh, yeah. like an incredible match in terms of them doing stuff that at the time you just didn't see in a wrestling ring. Um, and I thought it would age tremendously. Like, okay, would, if you does it look kind of like a standard PWG match now? Uh, yeah, but that's kind of the point is that that kind of style of wrestling was so popular that it became kind of the de facto standard for pro wrestling in, in, in the world. I mean, yeah, and obviously there's a lot of people that you contribute that to. You can certainly say someone like Shima and the Dragon Gate style helped do that. Um, and you can point to like matches like the do fixer versus blood generation match from, from ring of honor. Um, but like Hayabusa is definitely at the forefront of that level of innovation in kind of promoting that style of pro wrestling. Um, and I think, and this is true because because he wasn't in New Japan really um, and because he was in FMW and he's not seen as like the FMW guy, that's Onita. There's a, um, the, the one thing the Hall of Fame doesn't do a very good job of, and it's really because of how the criteria is set up, is represents very very significant periods or companies in uh, in pro wrestling history um by inducting talent from there if they don't have a talent that obviously meets the criteria um and onita obviously meets the criteria so he's in but i think about you know like shima like in dragon gate everyone knows dragon gate is historically significant wrestling promotion but there's really no dragon gate stapled guys in the hall of fame ECW is very similar where like ECW hugely 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 important wrestling company but outside of Paul Heyman there's really no ECW talent in the Hall of Fame outside of you know your Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero types who would probably be in even without ECW um and so you have like it's it's it doesn't always recognize the really important people if they're not in a major company because if they're not in the major company they probably don't have much of a drawing case um 
and they probably if they they might not even have that much of an in-ring case because maybe people haven't even seen their matches i bet you a lot of people haven't seen a hayabusa match because they're not on new japan worlds and they're not like um necessarily like historically accessible i mean now on youtube you can find some but even then a lot of his career is probably you know difficult to find these days Yes, yeah, so you actually kind of set me up uh, perfectly here, which I do appreciate. I think you read. I think you read one of the things I wrote. So th thank you for that. But that is that's one of the things I included in my column precisely was for in terms of male wrestlers that are in the Hall of Fame from Japan, uh, outside of you know the MMA guys, um, Sakuraba and Funaki. You know they're kind of hybrid, so they're kind of unique. Um, and Onita and Ultimo Dragon, all the other male inductees were someone that had a headlining run in New Japan or All Japan. And when did, that's when did, it. When did like, Ricky Dozan have his New Japan or All Japan? Oh, oh sorry, 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 I, sorry, I forgot. Also, I, I, I forget in my column, I also wrote, and New Japan and All Japan's uh, precursor. Yeah, JWA. Yeah, no, I knew you were setting me up for that. I wanted to say that. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, but outside of that, it's only like four guys. And two of them were also involved in MMA um, to some degree and had a lot of their stardom and success from that more than just, you know, straight pro wrestling. So I do, I completely agree that other promotions need to be represented. Um, and it, obviously not everybody from those other promotions, but I feel like some of the best guys for the other promotions need to be represented. One thing I want to bring up about drawing, um, specifically when it comes to Hayabusa. So he is not at Sushi Onita. You said people think of Onita as the FMW guy, and that's true. Onita is, he wasn't just the best draw in FMW. Onita is one of the best draws ever, period. He starts FMW in 89, like from nothing. And by like his retirement show, his first retirement show, there were many in 95. I mean, he's had so, at, between those two periods, he has so many stadium shows where he's doing like 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, you know, people at these stadium shows to yeah. watch his like crazy death matches against without, like a like... whole host. Sorry, he's doing it like without like major TV and like his distribution model is totally different than like having like yes. Japan or all Japan kind of presence in the country. Yes, yes, he is. It, it is astounding what he was able to accomplish in such a short time period. And we'll never, so when we'll people... never see something like that again. No, never. Absolutely not. Like a like I mean, I guess AEW is somewhat similar because they just you know did what um Wembley but it, it's 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 like that like honestly it's like going but AEW the difference between like AEW had stars from other places that they brought together whereas Onita was just like doing crazy things and then he did bring in stars from other places but just to fight him like <laughs> into all these batshit crazy yeah and like AEW had a billionaire batches. had a billionaire backing in yes. major major television distribution not only in the united states but around the world like it's it's, it's a totally different beast it'd be more like if like yeah. of honor uh ran yeah. stadium or something like that yeah 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 like pre sinclair ring of honor yeah. like if they somehow like got super hot and, yeah like uh, carrie yeah. silken you know ring of honor yeah and we're and so like fmw those first six years like you know 89 to 95 
like, you know, they were, you know, if you look at like the, the reported attendances from those, like that six year period there, they're like, you know, they're creeping up on all Japan. Like they were, they were huge. They were massive. Japanese, but, but were, Japanese attendance in the nineties comes with a Tokyo dome sized asterisk, but. Oh yeah. But everybody was lying. Right. Yeah. And then everybody lied after that too. So like, that's the thing. It's like everybody, like these numbers are a suspect, but everybody's lying. At the, right. At the same so time. if everyone's so, lying, there's some, actually... some scale of integrity, like in terms of like, well, they, they everyone lie, is lying the same percentage. So. Yeah. Like it actually, you know, even, evens it out a bit. So uh, in doing some, uh, so in looking at like uh, FMW post Onita, and he comes back, but he doesn't, he doesn't, outside of like a few of his first comeback matches at stadium shows, he doesn't mean that much after like the first year. Like he meant, he came back for like 97, 98. He meant something in 97. By 98, he doesn't really make any difference anymore. Part of that's because he turned heel and, but because people resented him for coming back after retiring. Um, but in that six-year period where Hayabusa is like the main guy in FMW, like who they're who they're building around, um, like they were the third biggest promotion in Japan while Onita was there. They stayed the third biggest promotion in Japan for the next six years um, for the remainder of Hayabusa's career with him as the top guy. And when I say they were the number third promotion, like they were they were bigger than All Japan Women. Um, they were bigger than like other than all Japan women, they were like more than double the size of any other promotion during that time period. They were much bigger than Dragon Gate um, ever has been. So even though like they weren't, you know, number one or number two, they were still very historically significant and popular. And looking at those attendance figures, like in terms of like a six year period, the only like since 1990, the only other promotions, the only promotions that are ahead of them in terms of more attendance over that six-year six-year period, were New Japan, All Japan, Onita's version of FMW, and um, oh, the first six years of Noah, which was basically just All Japan because it's the entire roster uh, minus Kawada um, starting Noah. So, if you think about like Hayabusa as a draw. Like he wasn't working in order to accomplish that. He wasn't working with like a bunch of other Hall of Famers. You know, like yeah, Terry Onita was there some. Uh, Terry Funk would come in sometimes, but for the most part, he's working with Mike Awesome, Mr. Ganaske, um, Kuroda. Um, I can't remember if I think he definitely he definitely overlapped with Mr. Pogo a bit. I don't know if you know much about Mr. Pogo Jesse, but the man had a sickle and he knew how to use it. Um, it's just he's not working with like this crew of all stars. Um, Masato Tanaka is awesome, like in terms of wrestler, awesome wrestler, but he's not, you know, a Hall of Fame level draw. Um, and that's the thing, like Hayabusa really just carried this promotion for six years, and that's longer than that's a longer amount of time than AEW has been in existence. And you know, we think of AEW as being historically significant. So I just think there's a really big misconception about Hayabusa that, oh, he took over for Onita and then FMW just like declined and died. died. It's like, no, it lasted for six years. It was incredibly popular. The reason it eventually went out of business is because it started in massive debt. And also like Onita, so I just need to get this out there too. Onita was the owner of FMW. He beat 
everybody. His retirement match was against Hayabusa, big stadium show. They do like over 50,000 people. He beats Hayabusa in his retirement match. And then his plan was just to close the promotion because he thought he could transition into being like a big acting star, uh, which surprised if you know what Atsushi Onida kind of looks like in his persona. Uh, yeah, wasn't wasn't really built for the silver screen necessarily. Um, but so he just, he, he beats Hayabusa and then Hayabusa has to like be the star of this promotion that's like saddled with debt because Onita just paid himself and his friends like a ton of money and like didn't reinvest anything into it because he didn't care. He was going to close it anyway. So it starts behind the eight ball and then they're just constantly trying to get out of debt. And even though they're very, very popular, they can't just be like, successful they have to be like really successful in order to survive and so i think that's i just think there's a lot of misperception people just think like oh it was just like straight downhill and they were like barely surviving and not much different than uh, like you know other non-new japan or all japan promotions at the time and it's like no like hayabusa headline shows of thirty thousand people um, that was his, his his big one, like the 96 uh, anniversary show did over 30,000 people. He has a number of others that do over 10,000. Um, Michinoku Pro would bring him in for some of their big shows and do like over 7,000 people, which are like some of their, like their biggest or second biggest show of a couple of years. They'd bring in Hayabusa to help them draw those for those big shows. So I feel like on the Japanese ballot, um, like in terms of like the, um, you know, the candidates that are still on there, I feel like he has an argument for being, uh, you know, outside of beauty pair, like the absolute best draw uh, on the ballot. Yeah, and you could even make a historical significance case in terms of him being like, I don't know if this would be fair, but like kind of like the first big Japanese indie wrestler. Um, you know, at the point where his star power is so much that you would almost not even consider him an indie wrestler, but in terms of being kind of this, and on, Onita was like this, but Onita was also kind of a guy from, from all Japan, right? Yes. Yes. He and was, so, he was like a, a prospect that had an injury that kind of ended his career, but then he, yeah, you know, so made a comeback. You could say Onita was really the first, but Hayabusa to me is almost like the more first like modern Japanese indie guy, um, to really kind of emerge as a big star and you look about subsequent generations of kind of japanese wrestlers that have stood out that weren't in new japan uh or all japan or noah and they're all kind of in the hayabusa model even a lot of the dragon gate guys um are obviously in that kind of pattern and i mean and there's also yeah, something another... i mean I I, another... oh sorry go ahead I, I was just gonna add like i mean People will weigh this differently, but his his career was tragically cut short. Um, there is there's there's no reason why he couldn't have had, uh, you know, many more years of solid in ring work and, and and maybe gone to a different promotion. Like Hayabusa should be working American Indies right now, um, like a lot of his contemporaries are. Yeah, I mean, I think had his had he not had that accident uh and been paralyzed i mean fmw probably would have gone on to business um eventually anyway because of you know the, the debt they had accumulated over the years and also when he got hurt like their attendance dropped off like i uh i'm thinking the column that i wrote last year doing some analysis like he was out for a number of months in 2000 um 
And then when he came back, like their attendance shot up like 30% for like the same number of shows that he was out for. Like he, he was so important to them. So when he got paralyzed, you know, they died very quickly after that. Um, they probably wouldn't have survived like in perpetuity. And I think he probably would have ended up being like, you know, one of the headliners in um, all Japan uh, after the Noah split uh, eventually. But you brought up like um, historical significance and we talked about like how he's obviously a major influence on all these different wrestlers. But also, if you think about it, he's one of the first, and he might, I don't know if he's necessarily the first, but he's one of the first headliners in Japan that did a high-flying style. Um, you know, there were some smaller guys that, you know, went from junior heavyweights to heavyweights, and obviously Jushin Thunder Liger, you know, would headline in New Japan, but New Japan was never built around Jushin Thunder Liger. Um, Hayabusa was, I mean, he came back from his excursion and was immediate, you know, had the match with Onida and then he's the top guy and he's just doing all these crazy high flying moves. And that is the headliner for the promotion. So in terms of like high flying, a high flying style being accepted as, you know, something that could headline in Japan. I also think he has a lot of, uh, influence and historical significance for that as well. All right, uh, moving on. I guess we I, we have to talk about Roman, don't we? We do have to talk about Roman. He's on my list. He was on my list. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, he's someone that we talked about a lot last year. But obviously, I think his career, his his case, uh, has changed. I would say that the past year has been very successful in terms of him emerging as the true kind of main drawing card in wrestling that WWE had always always positioned him for which I think has a lot of people feeling more optimistic about his chances to get inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, I'm curious to know what you think about like how Roman's last year has kind of influenced uh, your opinion on his case. Because if I recall correctly, you were not a voter for him last year. No, I was not a voter for him last year. I was not. Yeah, man, this is a loaded question. Um I guess I'll start with this. I feel like the cases for Roman in both extremes, like there's one extreme that's like, he's like the biggest star in the world. How could he not be in the Hall of Fame? It's a travesty if you don't vote him in. Like, what are we doing here if you're not if you're not voting for Roman Reigns, right? There's the other, and then there's the other side that's like. The WWE brand is all that draws. He's completely interchangeable. He's been a failure for most of his career. And the only reason he's successful now is because of Cody Rhodes and Sami Zayn. Um, and I fall somewhere in the middle of, of both of those. I think both of those arguments have merit to some degree, but I also think they both ignore a lot of evidence from the opposing viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 so complicated because of the way WWE's business is structured and the way WWE's model is. Um, it's 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 hard to kind of compare Roman to almost anyone else in terms of. You go back to John Cena, the guy he really replaced as as top star in WWE. Cena, we still have all of this data in terms of, um, you know, the house shows loops that he was on would always draw very well. He had we have um television ratings that are a little bit more uh 
stabilized in terms of they're not necessarily impacted by a global trend in getting rid of cable. Um, we certainly have pay-per-view buys and things that we don't have for Roman as a top guy. Uh, but so Roman is really the first kind of major case we have here of someone who's uh, in WWE's modern billion-dollar TV deal era. Um, and so it's kind of hard to really compare him to someone else um, for a number, of a number of reasons. I think on the negative side for him, being in this era has kind of maybe handicapped him where it's much more difficult to be over as a top guy. And it's much more difficult, I think, to really stand out as an individual star. Um, but at, at the same time, he's also benefited from the fact that WWE's business was not living and dying on his performance as a top guy, which is very different than pretty much any other historical wrestling mm -hmm. company, um, which makes him very difficult to, to compare to to other people, especially people when we talk about the Hall of Fame. And so um, it becomes hard to diagnose this in terms of, I've heard the argument, right, that he's really only been a truly successful draw for like a year, maybe two years. And before that, he really wasn't a successful draw, but he was pushed as such. So he's got like, you know, seven or eight years of failure and then one or two years of huge success. And that doesn't make a Hall of Famer, just a one hot period. But then you have to consider like, okay, how much was he really a failure back in like 2017, 2018? Like, what are the other factors that are in play? And it becomes very hard to diagnose um, and, and really compare him to anyone else because there, there's no one like him in terms of case. And it makes him probably one of the most in interesting candidates we've ever had on the ballot because I think you'll get, very, like you said, very impassioned arguments on both sides. Yeah, no, you, you definitely do. You definitely do. Um, in terms of digging into his numbers, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll just share like what some, some things that I did to try to analyze this. So I looked at like, you know, WWE's attendance, you know, year by year, like their average attendance taken from their financial reports. Um, I looked at Raw's, uh, you know, viewership average from year to year. And then I tried to factor in the decline of um, uh, traditional pay TV homes um, from year to year as well. So just as an example, like if, you know, Rod declines like 5% and the pay TV to homes also declined 5% that year, it's like a net zero, right? So right. it's like, okay, Raw's ratings, even though they went down, they're actually consistent, right? So like in terms of the years Romans pushed, like as a main eventer, um, like if I'm looking at 2015, um, and you know he's on Raw for, um, you know he's on Raw for all until he gets moved to SmackDown and you know uh, before the Fox move, but like if I look at 2015, um, traditional pay TV homes, then it looks like it was based on the numbers I got, and again this, I did the best research I could, it's down like one percent from the prior year. Uh, Raw's, uh, and I use total viewers because demo ratings can be hard to come by. Raw's uh, total viewer average changed that year. They were down 11%. So that's like a 10% decline um, in viewership. Um, and, you know, attendance is you know, relatively even uh, that year, North American attendance. Next year, 2016, traditional pay TV to homes are down 2%. Raw's total viewer average is down 14%. Now, so and that's very bad. That's fourteen percent from being down eleven percent the year before. 
Oh, so yeah, yes. So it was down 11% in 2015, down 14% uh, the following year in 2016. And that's only, you know, with like the cable cutting as people cord cutting is like kind of negligible, like with those decreases. Mm -hmm. um, then we get to 17 and 18. Uh, those years, the traditional pay TV, it goes down like about 4% each year, both in 2017 and 2018. Raw's total change only down negative 6% in 2017 and 2018. So it's still a decline, but I don't know if you, that's necessarily all attributable just to who the top guy is. Like WWE's creative had some other issues. Um, so I don't know if you can be like, oh, because they're pushing this guy, you know, like it's, you know, stuff's going down, uh, downhill. So I think like 2017 and 2018. Now, the other thing though, with 2017 and 2018 and 2017, um, you know, like their attendance does like decline, their international attendance is now average international attendance goes down 24%. And then in 2018, their North American average attendance goes down 7%. So those like that's not great either right but at the it's not like a disaster uh either so it's it's tough because um then like if you fast forward to like uh you know 2021 and 2022 their average attendance in 2021 is over and 2022 are both over 6000 uh per event in north america and that's like better than what they were doing over a decade ago and he's, you know, he's the top guy in the promotion. He may not necessarily be at all the shows, but he is getting pushed, you know, as the top guy. And he's obviously influencing, you know, people's interest in WWE. So it's like, and then 2023 this year so far has also been a stellar year for WWE. And while I understand that, okay, Cody Rhodes program was big. Cody was hot. Sammy was hot too. But the thing I'll point out about Sammy was, Sammy wasn't hot as an act ever in outside of maybe like his time in NXT main roster WWE. He never really mattered that much until he started working with Roman um, in the bloodline. And then I think they both helped each other to uh, be become elevated and, you know, in increase their profile, uh, increase business. And then the other thing that I bring up was, Okay, I can understand like the Sammy and Cody things, but SummerSlam this past year sold over 40, they announced 50,000. It sold over 40,000 tickets and he did monster quarter hours leading up to it for a feud with an Uso brother. Um, and no offense to the Usos, but I mean, again, just career mid-card act until they got associated with Roman as part of you know, his stable is the top guy. And now, you know, they headlined a night of WrestleMania uh, and the crowd accepted that um, because, you know, they're associated with the top guy and they're, you know, pushed like top act suddenly. And then they do the split and they even buy one of the Usos as a headliner um, specifically for this Roman program, which I think historically is going to look a little bit like Bruno San Martino working with Larry Zabisco. Um, but uh, yeah, just so it's a very complicated case um, with some high highs and some low lows and also some years that are kind of in between. Um, so it's very it's, it is hard to parse. Uh, I'll also just add that to me, Roman is not a Hall of Fame worker from a performance standpoint. Um, like if I look at his 
observer awards, you know, top five finishes. Um, he does finish number two for wrestler of the year, both last year and uh, in 2022 and number two in 2021. Um, 2021, he had the number five feud of the year with Brock Lesnar. Um, in both years, he was top five and mo most charismatic. But that's like a total of five top five finishes, like over his entire career. His only other top five finish was he was the number one tag team uh, with Seth Rollins in 2013. They kind of like broke the Young Bucks streak a little bit uh, in there. But so I don't really see him as a Hall of Fame performer. I'm actually really low on his heel work that he's been doing uh, the past couple of years. So what I would need to see from him is I don't, in order for me to vote for him, I don't need to see him just meet like the drawing criteria to be a Hall of Famer. I need him to exceed that. Um, now, I don't think he's a zero in terms of work, but I just need his drawing to be a little bit longer. I need him to sustain this period a little bit longer um, and maybe do some better work um, a little bit as well. But so I'm not going to vote for him this year, but I'll just say I could easily see myself uh, voting for him next year. Yeah, I mean the the thing about him this year is because he's 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 infrequently on the shows. The business seems to do continually well even without any guarantee that Roman is there. And in fact, most weeks you can assume Roman's not going to be there. Um, he's wrestled thirteen matches since we last had this discussion a year ago. Um, when he has showed up, you know there has been. You know, done really good business. You mentioned the quarter hours and the whole build up to the SummerSlam match. I thought was handled very well in terms of of making that feel like a big deal. Um, but SmackDown attendances have held up pretty well since he hasn't been on the show for the most part um, since SummerSlam. Uh, and I, I'm with you in the boat of we're looking at the criteria. I I don't think of him as like a historically significant wrestler in a positive way i think he's definitely historically significant just because he's been such a big star for such a long period of time in terms of how hard wwe has pushed him but i don't really see any real like obvious positive historical significance to him so he doesn't really get anything in that category and like his in-ring performance like i don't think he's like a bad worker but in terms of like a hall of fame standard like i don't think he's anywhere close to that so that doesn't really move the needle for me at all either so it really is just a work a, a drawing power case and there seems to be a lot of noise in regards to his drawing power ability if you especially if you you know hold those those early years against him um and I don't, it's interesting, like, okay, we're going to give it a year, a, a, two years, three years. I don't know if he's going to really prove anything more because I don't see him ever working a full-time schedule again. Um, so I could see him hanging around as, you know, a part-time guy and I'm sure he'll come in and I'll have big matches and he might headline WrestleMania a few more times. But the idea of him like putting together like a massive, huge run where he, you know, is just constantly the biggest star in wrestling as opposed to occasionally one of them. Uh, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. I think we're at a point of his career where, where he's in like the part-time mode, and I don't know if he's going to be crafting that much more of his, his legend beyond 2023. Yeah. One thing I'll point out, though, in terms of part-timers um, and also the like early failure, but then having success later on, um, that also describes Brock Lesnar's career. 
like he his early years like on top like and i'll put it this way i think brock was a much better wrestler than roman reigns has been uh in terms of in-ring um you know even early on but from a drawing standpoint like brock's early years were actually pretty rough um and he definitely wasn't like you wouldn't consider him a hall of fame level draw um after his first run but then you know after he's successful in the ufc he comes back has you know like like, like several incredible years as a part-timer uh, in WWE uh, and then gets voted into the Hall of Fame in 2015. So if Roman, I, a lot of it just depends on how much, you know, is he going to work and how is he going to be positioned uh, when he works uh, uh, as well. But I could easily see him, you know, adding, you know, a few more years as a, as a part-timer and, you know, continually being uh, a, a draw and, you know, maybe maybe as a part-timer, he becomes more effective as a draw, where he's like, well, oh, he has been, suddenly, for sure. He, yeah, like, suddenly he's in the John Cena position, right? Where he comes back and he's the special attraction that uh, that moves everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Brock's interesting, because Brock also has the MMA thing, and you want to factor that into how some people have gotten into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Um, going that route. What's interesting about Brock um, and Cena and reigns is um so brock comes in the rock does put him over um and he does beat the undertaker but you know steve austin who's the biggest star of that generation obviously never works with them uh famously so well he was supposed to that one time yeah. yeah um i don't think he never works with triple h um really during brock? his first run the bro- oh yeah no he does during yeah. his first run obviously even later um and it's kind of like you know brock comes into a situation where kind of a lot of the old guard is not around to work with him anymore and so he's kind of got to start new and he's you know he wrestles kurt angle but he's also feuding you know a huge portion of his time is spent feuding with big show um and these other talent that you know aren't really up to his level that need to be that don't put him over on the way up um john cena is almost very similar in the case of you know john cena wins his first world title from jbl uh god and, and like yeah. like and you look at like who are the you know john Cena doesn't work with the rock until much later in his career when he was already an established star he doesn't work with steve austin um so he he kind of has to um you know he, he has to kind of you know he works with edge he works with rob van dam he works with like these guys that he kind of you know he does work with Shawn michaels eventually and he does wrestle triple h um he, wrestled, he doesn't really wrestle The Undertaker uh, during that time period either. Um, so he kind of has to like create his own rivals, and, and, and he kind of has to stand up by himself, similar to kind of Brock. Roman really had like everyone line up in a row for him to beat. Like He beats um, Triple H. He beats uh, John Cena. He beats The Undertaker. He beats Brock Lesnar. Like he, Everyone got in line to put him over which I think makes them a little bit different than maybe some of these other guys that started off slowly because they were in a lot of cases starting from scratch. Um, and the whole Roman push was so calculated from wanting to put him in the shield to making sure he was always protected in the shield, you know, when they did the tag teams and stuff like that. And everything was so calculated to try to systematically push him over, even as the fans continued to kind of reject him. Uh, and again, like with anything the Roman, like his career could be different if he was booked differently. Uh, I think everyone knows that. Um, 
but I, I don't find him to be a particularly strong candidate at this time. I think a lot of it comes down to like, do you believe in, and some people certainly do, even if they don't admit it, like, do you believe in like kayfabe accomplishments meaning anything? Like, do you believe that, you know, winning the world title a lot or, or main eventing WrestleMania for what that, I mean, for what that means, um, headlining a bunch of pay-per-views, like, uh, does that really mean a lot to you? And some people will say it absolutely does. Um, but for me, I, I don't find him to be that strong of a candidate because he only really checks one of the boxes. And even that box is like a huge debate about how effectively he's checked that throughout his career. Um, and, and, and to be fair, there are a lot of wrestlers who had a lot of years where they weren't a draw, but are remembered as like hugely successful drawing cards. Um, so not everyone's career starts off where they immediately start drawing and they keep drawing forever. There are plenty of guys who work their way up. Roman kind of had a different path because he was pushed as a top guy for a long time, but he eventually did work his way up to being that kind of big star that they want. Um, but the interesting fact is that he's not wrestling that much anymore. He's not on a lot of the shows. And I feel like I'm, what I would need to be convinced for him would be to him for him to have like a massive year where he works a bunch of shows and he headlines a bunch of shows and he has a lot of memorable matches and like he really puts together like this complete awesome year. And for me, what I value as a wrestling fan and what I think has been historically valued as a wrestling fan, he hasn't done that. For some people, you know, coming out and saying, acknowledge, acknowledge me and doing the Tribal Chief storyline for 7 million days in a row, that does come across as like amazing, like weekly week television. But for me, he hasn't really done what i would expect from like the top 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 wrestler on a consistent basis um since he's kind of emerged as a draw yeah i mean i i do think his drawing like this past like especially 2022 and this year in 2023 even though he's not around like all the time i do think just wwe's business expansion um during these past two years and i mean 2021 was actually a very good year for them as well but obviously they only did like live shows in front of crowds for like half the year mm -hmm. so that's you know you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt but at least these last two years and then i guess you know half of 2021 like this like period of business expansion that they're experiencing it, it is a historical outlier like there aren't a lot of other periods like like what would happen would be like yeah like you know cena got hot in the beginning and business would go up and then it would kind of maintain or more or less stay in the same place. It would go up a little bit. It would go down a little bit. But it was really, there's just like one point where it like shoots up and then it kind of stays the same and then like gradually declines. You know, same thing with, you know, Hogan, um, same thing with Austin. Um, you know, it's like the short time periods where business shoots up and then they kind of like manage to sustain it or just decline slowly until they find, you know, the next big thing to kind of get it to go up again. And so we're seeing that right now, like that's happening. And he's the undisputed top guy in the company, even if he's not there all the time, like he has his surrogates, you know, his, his family fighting his battles for him. Um, and people are still into that. Uh, you know, even if he's not necessarily there, they are representing him uh, on the shows. So, yeah, I think I'm a little bit more open I think than you are, and I don't need to see as much more as you do. I, I I could easily see myself voting for him next year, but it does play out. Like I think about this as okay, if he just like had like some sort of unfortunate injury and had to retire like tomorrow, 
um, would I vote for him? And right now, I'm not sure about that. Um, you know, so I'm just I'm not going to do it uh, this year. But I could see myself voting for him next year. And then uh, to close, I guess my thoughts on Roman. I just want to say, voting him for the Hall of Fame is not an endorsement of WWE's booking of him right. from you know 2015 in, in the teens. Because guess when he took off as you know a draw and a star? It was when they turned him heel and stopped fighting the audience. If they had done that back in 2015, like who knows? Like where they would have gone or how his career would have played out both his career and WWE's trajectory uh, during those years as well. But, you know, we can't vote on what could have happened. We have to vote on uh, what did happen, but I just want to say voting for um, Roman based on primarily on his accomplishments the past few years, again, it is not an endorsement of how WWE booked him uh, during the 2010s. Yeah, one one thing that uh, a theory I've had a, an outside of the box kind of thought that uh, surely only my brilliant mind could ever conceive is we talk about drawing and where does WWE make their money now? It's great that their attendance is high, but where's all that money really coming from for WWE? Yeah, it's all from the TV rights revenue. Correct. So uh, SmackDown. Uh, since it moved to Fox and Roman got moved to to Fox, uh, and it's been really entirely built around Roman. It's the Roman show. It's 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 totally about Roman and, and the, his family. And the last few years have been like that. Um, despite the fact that ratings seem to be pretty strong, certainly stronger than uh, most people probably would have anticipated based on the trajectory uh, that the company was on for the uh, up until a few years ago. Um, SmackDown got a new television deal, and they're not on Fox. Fox didn't want to renew with them, and they're back on USA um, at a 1.4 increase, which uh, analysts clearly did not like because the stock price has gone down dramatically since that deal was announced. And maybe there's some other factors in play, but one of the key ones is that one underperformed. And so to the standard of what we would consider business success for WWE, uh, you could make the case that Roman is not been a successful draw, even though you could say like live attendance is up and ratings are up, the traditional metrics we'd use for uh, drawing power. But WWE, from what they care about, the the run on SmackDown, what SmackDown's been doing, what SmackDown was able to net as a television deal was not successful for them. Now, it's preposterous to compare that historically to say a company making $1.4 billion or whatever they're making off of that SmackDown deal is, is a disappointment. But that's kind of the game that WWE is in. And make a case that if they didn't build the entire show around Roman and maybe they had a more egalitarian approach and maybe they decided to push someone else into a strong position, maybe they would have got a better TV deal. Maybe SmackDown attendance or, or ratings would have been up even higher. Um, maybe, maybe not. But in terms of the metric that WWE uses for a success, in terms of where their bulk of their revenue is coming from, they're looking at that SmackDown performance the last few years and saying it didn't get us where we wanted it to be. And the stock price reflects that. Um, and I don't think anyone will kind of think about that in terms of the ballot, but I do think it's somewhat interesting in terms of when we talk about drawing power, we're talking about these kind of metrics that we've historically used and not necessarily where the true value for WWE is. It's another thing that kind of complicates his case. Yeah. 
I guess I would push back on that analysis a little bit because well, it's insane. So I, I would imagine. Well, so. it's it's not it's not it's not insane, but there's a lot of macro factors that don't have any involved in the stock price that don't have anything to do with like whether Roman Reigns is increasing interest in SmackDown. Like one is, uh, you know, just the television business in general, you right, know, the becoming less profitable is, and less revenue. Yeah, and the other thing is, uh, you know, the stock price is also based on what, um, you know, Nick Khan and uh, the people he talks to both publicly and privately, um, you know, what they lead the public to believe in terms of what their deal will be potentially. Seems like they might have uh, overpromised um, a little bit on that one. Um, but I I did forget to bring this up, so I'm glad I, I'm glad you mentioned this because in terms of, and again, I'm just using total viewers here, but pay, the pay uh, TV homes that I quoted earlier for Raw, obviously that doesn't apply to Fox because Fox is a broadcast station. But if you look at Fox's um, station average during prime time in different years, um, in 2021, it was down uh, 11% from 2020, whereas SmackDown in terms of total viewers was only down 4%. Um, from 2020. And then in 2022, SmackDown is actually up 3% in 20 viewers. And that's not, that's, it's up. It's legitimately up. More people watch SmackDown in 2022 on an average basis than watched it in 2021, even though the Fox primetime station average was down 12%. And uh, so far this year, in terms of total viewers, um, SmackDown is up again in total viewers 6% from last year. So in terms of just like, you know, looking at generating consumer interest, um, again, it's a very impressive run, especially in relation to the TV landscape uh, for SmackDown. But, you know, uh, less money in the TV business and uh, WWE overpromised a little bit. Uh, and now they are feeling that pain uh, with their stock price. Yeah. Um, so who else do you have on your list? Okay. Uh, Let's talk about another member of the Shield, uh, John Moxley. His first year, uh, and this isn't his first year on the ballot, right? He was actually on a couple of years ago, and he fell off immediately, but uh, now he's back on. Um, I'm actually, before I get into it, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on uh, John Moxley this year. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm going to vote for Moxley, and I can't really explain why, except I really like Moxley. I really value his kind of durability and lasting power uh, amidst all the kind of different challenges that AEW has faced from a personnel perspective since the company first launched. Um, I think that he has had some really, really incredible matches. I think his overall performance as a professional wrestler, I would rate very highly and as a Hall of Fame quality. Um, I think as a draw, he probably doesn't have a super strong case as a draw um i don't think he's significantly bigger than any of his contemporaries in AEW. i do definitely think in some ways he's he helped boil you the company um when it first started um in his his you know debut in AEW gave the company an incredible amount of buzz that it needed uh you know a double following you know double or nothing in 2019 um, and he does, you know, historically significant, you'd have to look at 
you know, that role he played in, in founding AEW and helping that company get off the ground, which is obviously the most important development in, in pro wrestling over the past, you know, decade or so. So those are um, really key moments for key things in favor of him. But I guess to me, I would say he's kind of like a B level in all three of the criteria. He's kind of a B level performer. He's kind of a B level draw. He's kind of a B level historical significant case. I don't see anything overwhelmingly hitting me that makes me think he should go in the way that the other guys on the ballot, I think, sometimes hit. But that being said, I could probably I could see myself voting for him because I do think he's been an outstanding performer for a majority of his career. And I do think he has been a really important figure in professional wrestling since really he debuted with the Shield. Um so those are kind of my thoughts on him, but I would I would say I'm leaning towards no, but it's, it's kind of I like ask the, you that. It's it's kind of like the Briscoes in that sense, where it's like I really respect him, I really like him, but sometimes a Hall of Fame is like giving out a five star match. Like you know, you go the full five when you just feel it, and if you have any tinge of doubt, you know it's not really a five star match. I kind of feel that way with Moxley. Okay, let me ask you this: If he had to like retire like tomorrow for some reason and you're looking back at like his career do you think you would vote for him right if this like was if the, it was just if, if it was over if this was like um my like this is his career is wrapped up easy or he pulls a Kota Ibushi and he just misses a whole year yes um yeah I, I want to say no but it's kind of hard to think about that from a perspective standpoint um if, yeah. if that's okay. not the case. Um, yeah, I, I would say so I would I, say no. Okay. So I, I that's what I thought about because I had some similar feelings as you did. Um, and then I thought about it and I just said yes. <laughs> it's just if he like I'm just thinking about his career, and I think I'll just start with the performance, you know, in-ring performance criteria. Like his work in the shield is awesome. And so he does that for like a year and a half, like 2013, 2014. And then he also has a really good feud with um, Seth Rollins in the latter half of 2014. Um, and, and so like, I, I look at those, I'm like, yeah, those are, those are like the highlights of WWE during that time period, you know, like outside of, outside of Brian Danielson, um, and, uh, you know, I guess like the end of Punk's run there, like the Shields, like, you know, the best stuff uh, from those years in WWE. And then also just think about like the last five years, like he's just done so much great work, like 2019 does the G1 in New Japan. And then he's like on the AEW pay-per-views. Um, well, I guess he wasn't on all the pay-per-views, but he did some of those um, specials, you know, right. And then early Dynamite. Um, he's like, and that's, anyway before i get into the historical significance but he and then 2020 you know he's the wrestler of the year he is the guy the promotion is built around like in 2020 um going into 2021 he's he's the champion like from like basically the start the start of the pandemic through like his entire first year and you know just carrying that show week in and week out 
um, you know, 2020, he has an incredible year in 2020, like the Observer Awards that we've referenced a couple of times. Uh, like he won best brawler, US Canada MVP, number one wrestle of the year, number two best interview. He has two top five uh, feuds of the year. Like it's it's just, he's the most voted like number three, most charismatic, just an incredible year. And then, you know, he does that again in 2022. Uh, he's the wrestler of the year, number five, most outstanding, number two, best interview, US Canada MVP, best brawler again which he also won in 2021. So like, he's an amazing promo. He has so many great matches, um, even though he doesn't necessarily have the match of the year. He has so many great matches throughout that, you know, five-year time period, um, you know, plus his work uh, with the Shield. And then as a draw, I mean, he's headlined, like, and just looking at like the different pay-per-views, He's headlined or been like, you know, co-headliner, you know, you can argue he's in the most important match on the show in 12 different AEW pay-per-views. And uh, if you want to take it to WWE, like also, you know, like over a dozen, um, I, I have it at 17, like WWE, um, you know, previous premium live events, whatever you want to call them uh, as well. So he has actually headlined a lot. But I think the thing that put him over the top for me, and I just kind of realized this, I was just thinking about it in terms of like being really important uh, to AEW. Um, do you remember uh, when AEW got their paying TV deal? Their first paying TV deal? Really? Um, I feel like, like not it was the... January of 2020. That's it. That's it. So... Like when Dynamite starts, uh, like between the time Dynamite starts and they get that TV deal, like that actually pays in January 2020, the most important programs and the stuff the show is built around, it's built around Jericho and Cody and then Omega and Moxley. And then after those programs end, it's Moxley and Jericho. And those are the three most important programs during those first few months of Dynamite. And they were so successful in those first few months that uh, TNT um, said, wow, this is incredible. This is way bigger than we ever thought or hoped it would be. We're going to lock you up and pay you, even though we have this ad share deal. <laughs> Like our and production, like we'll pay your production expenses and share the ad revenue. That was all they had when it started. It's so successful in those first few months that TNT's like, yeah, you know what? We we are we want to pay you money because we want to lock you up for a number of years. And if that doesn't happen, like if they're like less like if they don't have him, like big star from WWE to really kick off their national uh television, if they and also just getting a lot of buzz, you know, right? Because he just shows up unexpectedly at their first pay-per-view. And which really, I think, definitely helped them uh, in terms of getting like, you know, WWE fans or former WWE fans interested in them that maybe not might not have been as familiar um, with Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks uh, or just thought Chris Jericho was old. I think he definitely attracted uh, some of that audience. And if they don't get that paying TV, TV deal and then the pandemic hits a couple months later, you know, the promotion probably isn't around. Um, uh, there's a really good chance it's not around. Uh, you know, it probably dies like during the pandemic. 
So from that perspective, I just think he has, like, I do think that carries historical significance with it. And I think that helps with like his drawing might not necessarily be totally clear if he's a Hall of Fame drawer or not. I do think that historical significance like pushes him over the edge uh, for me because I definitely think he's done enough from a work perspective to clearly be a Hall of Fame worker. And then I do think his accomplishments um, in those other two categories even though they might not necessarily be overwhelming. Uh, for me, it's more than enough for me to just say, you know what, if he did retire tomorrow, yeah, I do think he's a Hall of Famer. And so what am I waiting for? Um, he's on the ballot. I, I feel like he's worthy. And I think he's one of the five best candidates. So he has my vote. Yeah, I think that's a really good argument, especially talking about the, the kind of 2020, early 2020 TV deal, because you also have to remember that that period of AEW is, is way less in terms of like conventional star power than what they would later be, right? No CM Punk in the company, no Brian Danielson in the company. Um, you know, MJF isn't, you know, over really at all as a star back then. Neither is, um, you know, Hangman Page is kind of a different level of a draw. Um, Jesse, they, they didn't even have like w, former WWE guys like Miro or Andrade or malachi black right like it's none of those guys were there in terms of like major single stars i feel like you you had chris jericho you had kenny omega and you had cody and those were kind of who the show was built around during that first quarter which a show that wildly overachieved expectations to the degree that they ripped up the tv deal and got a new one um as you described and you're right that is really i think important um, especially because of how that that Kenny Omega uh, Moxley feud, um, how important that was to kind of setting the tone for the the promotion and, and really carried a lot of those early dynamites, which were not perfect shows. They didn't have nearly the roster depth that they would later have to kind of turn dynamite into what it would become. Um, so yeah, that's that's a good argument. Um, my uh, my next guy here this is kind of interesting because I think he's very different than Roman Reigns, and that's Tomohiro Ishii. And my case around Ishii, and I and I wrote an article for voiceofwrestling.com on this, is uh, with with Ishii, what I find most compelling about him, and, and we know he's a great worker. That's what this case is about. It's about, you know, his his in-ring work. He's he's got like he's main evented some shows. Um he's not like an anti-draw, but he really doesn't have much drawing power and he really doesn't have that much historical significance. It's totally in-ring work. And the two things that stand out to me about Ishii are first his durability and his long-term, uh, you know, the, the 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 sheer magnitude of how many great matches he's had over his career and how long he's been able to keep going and do that on a consistent basis. And then the second thing, which I think is really important to talk about, um, when we're talking about Roman, um, and they're almost like couldn't be two dissimilar candidates that are contemporaries than than Roman Reigns and Tomohiro Ishii. And one of the big things about Roman was there's this, you know, belief that like, oh, well, he only is in that position because he was pushed really hard. And the fact is, is that almost everyone in the Hall of Fame is in the Hall of Fame because a booker pushed them. That's just how you end up being a, a top wrestling. You have to have management believe in you and to some degree. And then out of everyone that's in the Hall of Fame, out of pretty much everyone that's on this ballot... Has there been ever been some like is there anyone on this ballot that was pushed less than Tomohiro Ishii for the company he worked in? Wow, I didn't expect that question. Uh, 
Maybe, uh, maybe not. Well, I guess Tristratus. I guess I think I think that might be the only one. Yeah, but like yeah, you could say no, you could say Trish, but even within the scope of what she was competing in, Trish was pu- pushed pretty hard. But yeah, um, but like Ishii, like he's like a career five hundred wrestler. He um, has never, you know, seriously been a title challenger. He's challenged for the title before, but I don't think anyone has ever really bought him as a as a as a world champion. Uh, he has mostly been held held like the mid card singles titles here and there. Um, He's never really been pushed in New Japan very hard. He's been kept at a level of respectability, but he's never really been pushed as a top guy ever. Um, and despite that, he not only has had all these amazing matches, um, and it, it is easier to have great matches when you're pushed hard, um, he gets over everywhere he goes. He goes to America or the UK, and he wrestle, he'll wrestle on Dynamite. And you know now people know who he is, but when he first showed up, there's a decent size of that portion of the audience that has never seen a Tomohiro Ishii match before. And they are seeing this guy who's like, I don't know, five foot five, looks old, unathletic, bad body, like just does not look like a credible badass whatsoever. But he gets in the ring, he works, he does his match, and he always gets over. And he does it without like having any real aesthetic appeal. And he does it without being pushed or really presented like a star. He does it solely through his in-wing work. And he has gotten over every single... I have never seen an Ishii match that really didn't get over. And that's with including a lot of matches in front of audiences that many of whom had no idea who he was. And that, to me, you can talk about his G1 matches. You can talk about the number of four-star matches he had. You can talk about his placement wrestler of the year in, in, or um, most outstanding wrestler category and G1 MVP awards and all of that kind of stuff like that. But to me, the most compelling argument is simply the fact that the man has always gotten over purely, and I mean purely, through his in-ring work. Yeah, no, um, couldn't couldn't agree more. The only other thing I'll, I just want to add is, you know, like if you just think about the criteria, um, you know, more than meets the in-ring performance category, and you know, when we talk about longevity as well i mean it's it's well over a decade at like such an incredible level um, of work like year in and year out and from being from a push standpoint um uh john muse uh, mentioned this to me and i think it'll be in um, a column he's writing about tom Hiroishi as well um, rival my column like... Tomo, on tom Hiroishi, my, my great <laughs> rival john muse <laughs> yeah, so that's actually great. If you and him both agree that this guy's obviously a Hall of Famer, right? Uh, has to be, has Fair. to be. Um, but uh, one thing I wanted to uh, mention, uh, one thing that he pointed out to me was one of the reasons Ishii wasn't necessarily pushed as hard in New Japan is that, uh, you know, he he started years earlier. Um, I don't think people know this, but I don't think they necessarily think about it. Like by the time he joins New Japan, he's not young anymore. Like he's like around 30. So he's not someone that they necessarily thought was still going to be like an amazing wrestler and a major player, like, you know, 10, 15 years after he joins. He wasn't someone that they were like, oh yeah, we're going to build around this guy. He was just someone they brought in to, you know, give depth to their roster yeah, like this guy can work a little bit let's just throw him on there yeah 
yeah, like get the best out of him. So, and then maybe by the time they figure it out, he's like, you know, like, oh, wow, this guy's actually really incredible. And he just keeps going. They probably always thought he was about to fall apart, like every single year, <laughs> like after his first few years there, they probably just thought like, oh yeah, no, this guy's going to start declining, right? Or he's not going to, but you know, if way back then they knew it would be 2023 and this guy would still be incredible, you know, maybe they would have, you know, uh, pushed him more. So a lot of his like lack of push, I think too, is just, you know, kind of the time and place and when he happened to, you know, join New Japan. But I also think like him being this great in the biggest promotion in Japan. Now he's not necessarily like the draw that's, you know, uh, you know, generating the, the revenue and generating the interest, but him being this great, in the biggest promotion in Japan during one of like one of, if not the most successful periods in new Japan's history. I do think that also adds to his case as well, because it's not like this was just a guy having great matches that, you know, uh, constantly that nobody was seeing a lot of people were seeing them. Um, and so I do think that adds to his case a bit and gives him a bit more um, historical significance than, you know, someone who's doing like, uh, I don't know if anyone's really doing similar levels of work, but, you know, another great worker in like a lesser tier promotion. Like, I do think that adds a bit to Ishii's case, even though he wasn't headlining quite as frequently. Yeah. I mean, you could talk about like how competitive the New Japan roster is. You could talk about like spots in the G1 and like you have to hold up your end of the bargain if you want to stay in there. And of course, they've expanded the G1 field and things like that. And I guess it's been rumored that he's been considered to not make the cut, but for fans, it would be crazy right now for Ishii to not be in the G1 he's held you know he's held off a lot of talented wrestlers that he would get like if you were to rank um ask fans who do you want to see in the G1 the most and you get the whole list of New Japan uh roster members a lot of fans are going to put Tomohiro Ishii probably in like their top five um despite the fact that he's old and really doesn't get pushed I mean he he's thought of as the greatest G1 wrestler of all time by a lot of people and i'm not really going to dispute that and he has a sub 500 record he's like 10 matches under 500 for his career in the g1 he's he's the greatest g1 performer uh you know in, in history and he's going four and five every year um which again just tells you i think he just and, and to, to, to the point of like maybe why he never uh won matches because he never has to like he doesn't have to be pushed he's always going to be over to a certain level and i guess some people might say like, oh, his match style is very formulaic. Um, he doesn't really mix it up. It's it's every Ishii match is the same. And I think there is some like literal truth to that. But his matches always get over. So what's the problem here? Like, what, like if you, I'm never bored by them, I guess. I guess other people might be. But clearly, you know, the fans aren't because otherwise he would be, you know, his, he would be less effective. And he's not. If anything, he's like just as effective as ever. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. And he, he's worked with a lot of different people, a lot of different types of wrestlers and uh, his match works with all of them. So there's definitely uh even though you're like, Hey man, it's, you know, it's, it doesn't mix it up that much. It's like, well, if it works with everyone and if it's not broke, you don't need to fix it. Yeah. Um, he doesn't yeah, feel like no, he's, he's... Get, he doesn't feel like he's gotten stale. No, 
no, not not at all, not at all. He's say so he's he's got my vote. He's uh, he's one of my three uh, in Japan. Yeah, he's uh, just absolutely incredible. And like it, when I look at the list of like who's in the Hall of Fame for Japan, um, you know, I have absolutely no qualms about him being added to that list. Mm-hmm. All right, who is your last intriguing candidate you have written down? Yeah. Um, there's, you know what, the last candidate, so I, I had a couple, but we've talked about um, quite a few of them. I think there's one candidate that I hadn't necessarily planned on voting for, but the more I've thought about it recently, I decided I was going to vote for them. Um, and that's the British Bulldogs uh, as yeah. a tag team in historical. And when I think about like what the criteria is, they don't really, they don't have a case as uh, Hall of Fame level draws. Um, they they just don't. Um, but they did headline some, you know, in WWF and in some other places. Um, you know, but they're just, you know, obviously they don't really have a particularly strong case Hall of Fame level draws. And their work for the time, though, man, I was watching some older matches of them, and it's just like these guys are like ten years ahead of their time. Like it's it's just incredible the stuff that the stuff that they do in relation to like the people that they are working with. Um, and I do, the more I thought about it, it, it was just like, man, they really, they really did influence like so much. It's mostly Dynamite Kid, um, you know, and Dynamite Kid is already in the Hall of Fame. And I know you have a thing uh, or a very uh, strong, held, strongly held belief that sure if, Yes, that you don't like to vote for tag teams when um, one member is already in the Hall of Fame. But and I uh, I'm not I don't take quite as hard a stance on that. But uh, my the way I think about it is like the, the partner has to give they have to add something to the team to make it to like to make the Hall of Famer's career more successful than it would have been otherwise, or like make the team just so like ungodly exceptional. Like Holy Demon Army is the perfect example. It's like Talley on his own is the Hall of Famer. Uh, I don't know, maybe uh, Kawada obviously locked for a Hall of Fame, but Kawada and Talley together are like the best tag team ever. And so I struggled with that with the British Bulldogs a bit, but what what made me come around to it eventually was uh, Dynamite Kid in the WWF, like being on that platform is what is part, is a, in large part what gave him such historical significance and influence. And if he doesn't have Davy Boy with him as his tag partner, I don't know if he necessarily gets that same opportunity on his own. Because he was roided to the gills, but he was also a little bit smaller um, as well. And yeah, I just think that like having and Davy Boy is also like a great wrestler in his own right. He wasn't at Dynamite Kids level, but he was a great wrestler in his own right. And so I think though, like just that combination and like being in that tag team is what allowed Dynamite to like have the vast influence that he did and like do wrestling again that was you know at least a decade uh, ahead of its time for such a wide audience and so the more I thought about it I was kind of like you know what I was I didn't vote for them last year when they were first on the ballot but in watching them uh, you know during this voting season and really thinking about it 
I was just like, man, it just they they do seem really important. Um, and they they just do seem really important. And I, some of it too might just be my taste in wrestling. But like when I watch like the '80s um, tag teams, you know, and I, I recognize their great matches. You know, the the Midnight Express, the Freebirds, um, you know, Rock and Roll Express. But man, I just I just like the Bulldogs more. <laughs> And all those teams during that period and I just like man I just I don't know I just I just I just the more I watched them and the more I thought about it it's like yeah they just seem so important and one of the best teams of the decade and I just feel like I have to vote for them definitely think it's an interesting argument like especially the historical significance aspect of like would Dynamite be influential if he wasn't having with teaming with Davey and because Davey like you know, had the peel that Vince would want in a wrestling star. I think, yeah, I mean, Davey's interesting in terms of, like, if you watch Davey's work with the, you know, as part of the British Bulldogs team, and you talk about, you know, he's a great wrestler, and he's so much, he's so different, and he's so much better than, like, a lot of the other, like, big muscle guys that WWF has at the time, or that you would see in wrestling. Like, he's super athletic, his technical wrestling is great. He does a lot of the British style of, of going through holds and stuff like that, but he's got the body of, you know, the prototypical WWF guy of the 80s. Um, and I don't know if that's really been influential. Like, I don't think there was a bunch of people in the 90s that like, oh yeah, I'm going to wrestle and look like Davey Boy Smith. But I do think like if you, it definitely stands out when you watch it, you know, that work from the 80s, especially if you're watching like a full WWF show and you're seeing like, you know, Don Morocco and Hercules Hernandez and all these guys uh, that are like his contemporaries that he's on the same show with. And then you look at Davey and just like, he's kind of in a different class. Um, so that's a really, I mean, it's a really interesting case. I mean, what do you think of them from like a longevity perspective? Do you think they were ta- a tag team like long enough to kind of warrant consideration? Yeah, I mean, they, they're what? They have, I want to say it's like six or seven years about. Um, and so if I'm thinking about like, like a singles wrestler, um, you know, I kind of want like, at least over from, it's, it can be a little bit different depending on how great they were necessarily, but you're looking for around like, you know, more than like five years or more, it's going to be different for each person, but I want at least like five years from like a drawing standpoint or like a really high level work standpoint. And so they're, they're together for longer than five years, like six, seven. So I do think they were together for long enough and you know having enough really good matches during that time period so yeah i think their longevity again it's not it's not like super long like it doesn't compare to like the young box or the briscoes but you know a lot of the tag teams in the hall of fame were around seven years it's like yeah that's kind of like what the kind of what the standard is yeah and you know the bulldog is going to win whether he wants to or not so <laughs> doesn't have a choice yeah doesn't have a choice um, my last pick is also a tag team that uh, contains one wrestler who is in the Hall of Fame and one wrestler who is not. And I think this is more interesting almost as a thought exercise than as a discussion of their candidacy. But it's um, it's Antonio Noki and uh, Seiya Sakaguchi, um, who, if we're looking at this purely on, like, who fits the criteria and, like, who was a big star and who drew money. Um, like Anoki and Sakaguchi really fit the criteria really well. Um, they headlined 
a million shows together. As a tag team, they drew very, very well. Um, they were tagging from like the JWA in like the late 60s, early 70s, all the way up to main eventing the Tokyo Dome in, in 1990 uh, against uh, Chono and Hashimoto, which was kind of like their last major tag team match together. Um, so you're talking about like this 20 year window uh, on and off at certain points, but certainly during like the ch- tag league season and things like that. I mean, Sak- Sakaguchi was Inoki's primary tag team partner. He was spent a long time as kind of the number two Japanese wrestler behind Inoki, um, especially in the seventies, kind of before, you know, Fujinami and, and the other kind of that class kind of pops up. Uh, and, and for whatever reason, I feel like they have absolutely no momentum on this ballot whatsoever. I feel like they might are in danger of falling off of the ballot, um, despite the fact that on paper, they're just hugely, hugely um, prominent stars that should probably get inducted into the Hall of Fame based on the standard that we have. My thought is it's extremely boring to vote for them. And and so no one is making the case for them. And it's like, I only have three votes in Japan. Like, am I really going to vote just kind of so, you know, Sakaguchi can get into the Hall of Fame as a tag team with Anoki? Because, I mean, make no mistake about it. A huge reason why they're such a successful draw is because Antonio Anoki is like an icon and it, it would be a huge draw tagging with anybody. Um, Sakaguchi was just kind of his most dependable me- member. But I... I I always think like I've heard so much for the case for Antonio Rocca and Miguel Perez. And it's like, oh, they were a huge drawing tag team. They did these huge numbers, MSG and, and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, well, we know that they really did that large. And Miguel Perez added to the act for sure. But we really did that because like Antonio Rocca is one of the biggest stars of all time. And so that's why those matches were like hugely, hugely successful for the most part. Just and but Inoki and Sakaguchi, who I think have somewhat of a similar relationship, maybe they didn't peak quite as high as Raka and Perez, but they certainly tag team for much, much longer than uh Raka and Perez. And I don't see Raka and Perez with the sixty thousand people at the Tokyo Dome like Sakaguchi and Inoki did. Um but for whatever reason, nobody seems to care. <laughs> I don't think they're gonna get many votes in J- the Japan region. Um but based on the standard that has been set, and I think what we should consider, uh, by the way, they're both pretty good workers too. Like they were a pretty good working tag team for their time period. And they have, if you go back, there's not like a ton of video that's easily accessible. You can watch more on New Japan World than you can on YouTube. But these guys had many, many, many good matches and they drew for decades. Um, and they were absolutely huge main event acts in you know one of the most prominent wrestling promotions to ever exist. <laughs> And for whatever reason, they just I they get no traction on the ballot, and I, I'm not even going to vote for them because I don't believe in the whole tag team rule as as we discussed earlier. Um, but I don't see if you do, I don't see a case why you wouldn't vote for them. Yeah. Uh, Have you ever considered even voting for them, Adam? No, and I can explain why. Um, I think their drawing would have been exactly the same if instead of Sakaguchi and Noki was tagging with Toriyano. Like, right. I, so the <laughs> idea is that Inoki is 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 real. The reason they're all big stars is the the reason they're a big drawing team is because Antonio Inoki is like the biggest star ever. 
It's not just, yeah, it's not just that. So like I, I'm open to, so I just talked about the British Bulldogs. Um, there's some other, like two other teams on my ballot. I'll just throw out here. I, I am voting for Rock and Perez, and I'm also going to vote for Jack and Jerry Briscoe. And my thought process behind this is that while Rocca and Jack Briscoe, they're both, you know, big headlining stars, like, right, they're Hall of Fame acts in their own right, already in the Hall of Fame. The reason I think the tag team should be in as well is because they allowed those guys to extend their period of drawing by being in a main event tag team and adding, you know, something meaningful um, to the team as well, because like Jack Briscoe, Rocca, great draws, but you know, their time on top wasn't going to last forever, right? They had to get filtered in and out of the main events to kind of keep things fresh or, you know, work in different places, uh, perhaps, but being in a tag team with a good partner allowed them to continue to headline, but as a tag team wrestler, and so that's why I think like the their partners are relevant um, to the success of the team and the team is relevant to the success of their career. When it comes to Sakaguchi and Inoki, it doesn't matter who Inoki was teaming with. I mean, that guy was just the god of pro wrestling in that country. Like he could have headlined, he could have done whatever he wanted um, until he got older, you know, and had to, you know, take a step back. But in terms of being a draw and like he could have just kind of and Sakaguchi was good. I'm not saying he wasn't good, but it's just I don't I don't know. I don't think like that team like added longevity to Inoki's career um, or his enhanced his you know period of being a draw. He just, you know, that was just who he selected to be his partner. And I think they would have had similar success if he picked, you know, a half dozen other people. Um, from that time period as well. I mean, that's probably true, but he didn't. Yeah, no, it's it's true. It's like, it's true. But that's he, he tagged yeah. him for five hundred, almost five hundred matches in his career over a twenty-plus year span. And Sakaguchi himself was a, a a pretty prominent individual wrestling star. It wasn't like his career is entirely titled tied to Inoki. Um, no, that's true. I think it's a little harsh to say that he didn't bring anything to the team whatsoever. Now, obviously, no, yeah, that wasn't what I meant. That wasn't what I meant. I meant more. I feel like the team. I didn't mean he didn't bring anything. I just mean because Anoki was, you know, a, a god there. It just whoever he teamed with, the team was going to have a similar level of success. That's all. Mm -hmm. Maybe like maybe the matches wouldn't have been as good um, if he chose somebody else who wasn't as good a worker. Obviously. Um, but as you know, regardless of that, I still feel like from a drawing perspective, like it's it's just be, because it's Inoki and a lot of different people would have worked uh, tagging with Inoki. Right, Inoki makes the team boring um, to a degree. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's I believe all of the candidates as this thing crawls over the two hour mark, but that's fine. The um, is there any other? Let's let's uh, let's just peek at the ballot so far. Um, we're going to play a game that you're totally unprepared to play. Or maybe you're prepared to play. I'm going right. to name every single person on the ballot and you give me like, if you have any thoughts on them whatsoever, just, just okay. shout them at me. And if I have anything else to say, I'll, I'll add in. And I'll kind of, I'll start with the category. So uh, historical performer errors, you, you vote in that category, correct? Yes, I do. Okay. 
Um, I my general policy is here. I have. I'm just looking at it right now. I believe I have one, maybe two person, two people I'm voting for in this category. Um, let's see if you can find them. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to rattle them off here. If you, if you have anything to say, just stop me and start talking. So Oldie Anderson, Bob Armstrong, Tully and Arn, classic uh, team that people can't believe aren't in. Yeah, just not, just not long enough. Just, yeah. just very short. Uh, yeah. Jack and Jerry Briscoe, which you kind of already talked about. Could you could you be voting yeah. for two Briscoe teams this year? I think I probably am, actually. Yeah. <laughs> British Bulldogs, who you obviously mentioned. Uh, June Byers, who I feel like is gaining some momentum. Um, she she is her story. Uh, if you don't know about June Byers, her like her career and um, man, her like story with. Um, is it that Mildred, Mildred Burke? Yeah. Right. Like their, their rivalry um, and like the promoter that they were both, were they both married or do they just both have relationships with? Uh, but I don't know if Billy, they, Billy, it's Billy Wolf, right? Um, that, that That's yeah. That, anyway, if you, I, I, I haven't read it recently, but that story is one of the best examples that like the behind the scenes stuff in pro wrestling oftentimes can be much more interesting than what's on screen. That is fascinating. Yeah. yeah and then fabulous Mulo came in and ruined women's wrestling for like 40 years. Um, wild bull curry. I will say uh, I like wild. He's, he's interesting. He has, um, you know, some people argue he was the innovator of like the, wild violent brawling that like brody and abdullah the butcher um, yeah, adopted well, he, and he pre he predated them yeah he's kind of a bit. star in the detroit scene with the chic and kind of and the chic as well yeah yes yeah yes. it's kind of yeah. part of that element dick the bruiser um kind of getting involved there um jyd are you a jyd voter i am um you sound ashamed yeah, um, to say it no, I, I go back and forth on it a lot because he was a bad wrestler. <laughs> like he wasn't good, but he just he man when you when I look at his drawing stuff, holy crap, man! It's 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 and it's for like it's for like about a five year period, right? And that was kind of what I mentioned earlier. He's got like mm -hmm. about a five year period where man, it is so impressive. Like he's expanding business. Like if you look at some of those Superdome shows and the history. Like, there's like Dusty Rhodes and Andre the Giants, you know, are involved in like some matches. And then like JYD is doing like bigger numbers than they did, like not that long after. And so it's just, and I see stuff like that. It's just like, man. And then, you know, I do think there is something in terms of historical significance also to, um, you know, being a, a black star um, in the 80s that the territory was really built around. And I know there were other, you know, black headliners and champions and like, well, long before JYD, but being like, you know, that beloved baby face that, you know, the entire promotion is built around. I do feel like there's some historical significance in that. So I think he does exceed the drawing category. And then I think that historical significance kind of gets him over the line. Um, even though he offers like absolutely zero value from an in-ring perspective. When we talk about people, I was going to bring him up as like the, 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 like the Miguel Cabrera type of like someone who just had a very bad last several years of his career. Um, Oof. That no one yeah. Remembers. 
uh cowboy bob ellis who is like the oldest major star that's still alive um will he live to see himself get in the wrestling observer hall of fame um uh i i do vote for cowboy bob uh, um you're you're with cowboy bob ellis I am. I am. I don't think he's going to make it ever, but um, I do vote for him. Yeah, just um, in researching him, just, I mean, literal multiple decades of like headlining in different places and drawing really well. Um, Just the headlining and the longevity is incredible. Yeah, a lot Um, of longevity and a lot of like really like a classic baby face kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. And then also he, uh, you know, uh, got arrested for uh, fixing horse races, which I think some people say that's a negative. I think it adds to like his, his legacy. Um, he's the cowboy and he's fixing horse races, like really lived the gimmick. Pampero Furpo. Uh, Black Gordman and Great Goliath, Mike Tanay's favorite tag team. Um, the Archie, the Mongolian Stomper Goldie. The Hart Foundation, Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart, um, kind of interesting candidates there in terms of, um, I feel like they're more famous than they actually were successful as a tag team. Um, yeah, I would I, I would agree with that. They were, I mean, they were successful, but uh, yeah, I just don't, I don't feel the same way about them uh, that, that I do about the British Bulldogs. Sputnik Monroe, are you a Sputnik Monroe voter? No, I get the historical significance. I really do, but I just, um, yeah, I don't see a lot else um, that is compelling to me to vote for him. And the historical significance is, uh, it feels more like a little bit more of like a non-wrestler, even though he was a wrestler. I don't know. I just kind of struggle with him. I, I don't uh, really see him as a viable uh, candidate. I don't really see him as a viable candidate. Um, like, it's great that he played a role in like integrating like seating in the city of Memphis. Um, that's probably something that would have happened anyway. Uh, and I, I mean, if we're talking about like Sputnik Monroe, like I would much rather see like historical rest, black wrestlers who didn't get pushed um, mm-hmm. as good as their talent warranted because of their race uh, than like spend time like debating about Sputnik Monroe if we're talking about like historical significance. Like I'd much rather vote for Luther Lindsay or Jack Claiborne or people like that, then I would Sputnik Monroe. Um, uh, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch. Um, the the Texas Outlaws, as they were known. Argentina Rocca and Miguel Perez. We kind of already talked about them. Uh, yes, Johnny, I will be I will be voting for them. Johnny Rougeau. Oh yeah, I'm definitely voting for Johnny Rougeau. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you've, I would just recommend if anyone doesn't know much about Johnny Rougeau. Um, you know, just read Pat Prod's work, anything he's written uh, about Johnny. He wrote an amazing column a couple of years ago um, um, that's posted on the Observer site. And uh, yeah, after reading that and a couple other things, it's just like, yeah, this guy seems like an obvious Hall of Famer. And I really hope he gets in. I, I really do, because he's, I-, I feel like he's like one of the most deserving guys in this category. Mm-hmm. Iron Sheik, obviously Iron Sheik passing away this year, getting him on the ballot. Um Tiger Jeet Singh. Uh, Oh, man. (laughs) Uh, uh, I feel like he should be in the Japan category. Right. He definitely definitely is a Hall of Fame level draw. Whether that's enough to warrant his inclusion, I don't. He's like the worst wrestler. 
It's, See, I he's really the worst. Off. He's really bad in the ring. But would you not argue that he has like charisma and the ability to get heat? He does, but also I feel like most of his success came from he did a very controversial angle with Inoki um, early in his career. And I feel like a lot of his success was just coasting off of that as opposed to like things he was perpetually doing um, uh-huh. to enhance you know, if he, himself. And if his, he, like, so state. what I'm learning here, Adam, is if someone wants to get on your ballot, just don't work with Antonio Inoki because you're just going to credit Inoki for everything. To some degree, yes. Yes, like I can't dispute that. Tatsumi Fujinami, you probably wouldn't have voted for him, right? I would have voted for Tatsumi Fujinami. <laughs> and Vader. I would have voted yeah. for Vader yeah. also. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter. No, I believe this is his last year on the ballot unless he gets at least 50% of the vote. Of course, he's elected. Yeah, uh, I'm going to, I'm a Slaughter voter. Um I think he was, I think he has, he's similar to, uh, uh, this is going to sound weird. He's similar to John Moxley for me. Like, I feel like he was a Hall of Fame level draw or uh, it was, you know, very close. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel like he was a Hall of Fame level worker, even though his time frame as a great worker wasn't exceptionally long. Um, you know, I feel like it was, you know, we get to the five, six, seven year mark, Um and historical significance, I mean, he is definitely one of the most famous wrestlers um, from the 80s. Um, and definitely historical significant. He got, he was like the reason that AWA got that ESPN deal was because he was like the one wrestler they recognized. Um, and there's, you know, something to that. Um, you know, that probably counts toward drawing a little bit too. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a slaughter voter. I think he meets enough of the criteria, even though he's not uh, overwhelming in any one of them. And then uh, lastly, wrapping up here, we've got uh, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. A bunch of tag teams coming in here. Um, Mad Dog and Butcher for Chon, which is kind of like a, similar to having one guy in the Hall of Fame and one guy not in the Hall of Fame. Um, Von Bronner's and Saul Wiegerworf. I'll try to pronounce him a little bit too with the German name, but... Uh, I'll, I'll just say I'm always confused by this team because there were like several Von Bronner's. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, I don't like they're they definitely deserve to be on the ballot, but yeah, I don't think they're um I don't think they're quite Hall of Fame level. And of course, Kevin and Carrie and David Von Eric. I wonder if the movie will help. Maybe that'll be next year's uh election. I, I'm not probably... Eric. I was gonna say I'm not Von Eric voters. I am like really hyped for the movie though. The movie's gonna be I I wonder how much of a bump that's uh that's going to give them. Um, I am going to vote for the Von Erics just because, again, it goes back to kind of similar thing I said about JYD. Um, I feel like if you're like the baby face that a very hot territory is entirely built around, um, and also like they were, they was just incredibly popular and it didn't last, you know, super long, obviously, but it's one of the first thing, like, when people think of like 80s wrestling, it's like the WWF expansion and, you know, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. And then I don't think the Von Erics are too far behind that. Um, they're just incredibly popular and like yeah, and really, de- you know, set, set their place on fire. And they're getting a movie made it. Well, <laughs> the movie might not necessarily be just because they were successful wrestlers, I guess. So that might not be the best uh, thing to, to, to reference, but 
um, you know, obviously, like the, the reason people cared about them was because they were so popular and successful. They did kind of lay out the temp. It probably existed before them, but I don't know if it was ever successful of as successful of like, you know, the pretty boy uh, baby faces. Yeah. Um, my general philosophy with the historical performers category is I think a lot of these people have been greatly considered for like decades in a lot of cases. And I really need to be I really need to be sold on the idea that they have been critically underrated or under discussed um, for some for some reason. Like that's why I have a hard time voting for JYD or Sergeant Slaughter, because I feel like both of those guys are incredibly famous. All the people voting over the years have decided that they um, should not get in. And I, 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 it's hard for me to sell me an argument that's like totally new, that they've been overlooked for some reason. Um, I really like yeah. I really like Johnny Rougeau as a candidate because I can be easily sold. Like Johnny Rougeau has a lot of things that are negative towards him. The first being that he's just a little bit too old. There's not a ton of video evidence of him. Um, and he also was a star in a non-English speaking promotion where um, there wasn't a ton of, uh, you know, nostalgia for Johnny Rougeau in, in in Quebec wrestling the way there is for like Memphis wrestling or wrestling at the Auditorium or Mid-South or Championship Wrestling from Florida or these other kind of promotions that I feel like have aged, not necessarily aged better, but they've aged more in more relevancy. Um and so he's someone that I think if he if if Johnny Rougeau is like drawing power in his fame, if you just took that from Quebec and you put that in Memphis or St. Louis or Los Angeles or just some American city, I think he would be like of no doubt slammed up 1996 inducted to the Hall of Fame. But because it was kind of away from a lot of the English speaking world, he hasn't gotten that kind of recognition. Sure. Yeah. No, he's again slam dunk candidate for me. Um, the only thing I'd bring up with the Von Erics, um, I do think them being together as a group um, matters. Because I think it's, if you just look at them individually, it's like David, no, Carrie, no, Kevin, no. But if you kind of combine like all three of them and just think about like, yeah, though this is all three of them together was what the whole like territory was built around for a number of years. And they're obviously their most successful uh, time periods. They were always linked, you know, in, in some way working together and it gives them a little bit more longevity too, um, being together. So yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's just something, man, I don't, it's just, it, it just feels in the hall of fame feels incomplete today, you know, without, without them in it. There's, there's few more like powerful like images in pro wrestling than seeing one of the Von Erics usually carry like trying to get to the ring like through like a mob of adolescent teenage girls. Like yes. he's literally like swimming his way through this huge crowd of all these women that are trying to kiss him. There's like cops everywhere trying to push people off. It, it, it's insane. If this was the hall of getting uh, adolescent women to cheer and scream for you, they would be in first ballot. Oh yeah, yeah. Them and Jeff Hardy for sure, for sure. Uh, speaking of which, the modern U.S. candidates. We we talked a lot about these people, so we'll seem to know. It's Mark and Jay Briscoe, the Young Bucks. Edge. Um, Edge, I think, is going to end up being like, in order to get in the Hall of Fame, you have to have a better career than Edge. That's what I think his destiny okay. is. So. Yeah, Bill Goldberg, who I know we talked about a lot last year, um, 
I don't think anything's really changed in terms of that. Um, Matt and Jeff Hardy, uh, Becky Lynch. Uh, it's her debut on the ballot, I believe, right? No, she, she was on. Um, okay, so she, she was, was on, on last year. year. That's right. Um, yeah, she got she got twenty percent last year. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, she's. I could see. I don't know. I see the historical significance case because she peaked higher than any woman in the industry, um, like ever has. Like, there's never been a woman that was like at the top of the industry the way she was for that you know brief you know several month period. But when it comes to like looking at her as like, I don't really think she has a work case. Um, and at her as a draw, like, man, those two 2019 bet metrics. We were talking about Roman earlier. Mm-hmm. 2019 between Becky and Seth was brutal how hard um, WWE's interest fell off. And Roman's like around then, but he's like not headlining. He's like in like the upper mid card for most of that year. And Becky and Seth are on top. And boy, just Raw just totally tank. Obviously, it didn't help that, you know, they're feuding with Baron Corbin. And yeah, Lucy I mean, Baron Corbin tanked those ratings. Baron Corbin tanked those ratings. Everyone knows that. The right, right. I, I'm sure they, well, I think it's a shoot explanation too. <laughs> I'm sure they would have done much better with like anybody else basically on the roster. But again, that's what did happen. And so like Becky and Seth, I'm just like, no, maybe over time they add enough um, or Becky's historical significance becomes a little bit more clear in terms of how she's influenced wrestling moving forward. But uh, yeah, for right now, they're both like solid no's for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think with the, the four horsewomen, I do kind of sense it could be like, we're talking about like Dragon Gate or like ECW about like, we know that they're very historically significant, but it's kind of hard to pick one of them that's historically significant more mm. than the others. And wait, if we start getting them where more of them are on the ballot, if Sasha Banks hits the ballot or Bailey or Charlotte hits the ballot, it's going to be very kind of hard to, you're going to vote for all four of them. You're going to pick one or two. They're going to end up splitting votes and stuff like that. It's going to be very difficult, I think, for them to get in. If they were in as a foursome, they'd have a much stronger case, but that would be kind of ridiculous. Um so I could see their 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 kind of their in the long run their uh, candidacy being hampered by that. Um, John Moxley we already talked about uh, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. I know uh, Adam, you're a big uh, outsiders defender in terms of getting them in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, there. I just couldn't. I had to. It was actually it was a big struggle for me to decide between them and the Briscoes for my last spot. Um, I took totally different just, cases. Yeah. Oh yeah, the, the total opposite cases in every way imaginable, and I just decided to go with the Briscoes. But yeah, still, still, like if I had more spots, I would vote for them. But hey, got to pick the top five, and uh, yeah, chose the Briscoes over them. Paul Orndorff. Um, I vote for Orndorff every year. Um, I think he checks the boxes necessary. I think he was. A great opponent for Hogan. I think he drew some of the most impressive houses in wrestling history. Um, really good star for WWF. A good star, you know, when he was in Mid South as well. Um, mm-hmm. Excellent worker. I think he stands out, especially in the WWF. Like, and you look at like Hogan's opponents. Like WWF, there's like not a lot of like really good like athletes at the top of the WWF card. You know, it's Hulk Hogan. It's Roddy Piper, it's Andre the Giant, it's King Kong Bundy. Um, and like with the exception, like Orndorff and then like Savage when he comes along later, 
those are like the two guys that's like, oh, hey, these guys are like actual athletes and they move around like athletes and it really stands out. And I really appreciate that when you go back and watch that kind of style of wrestling. Um, so I think he deserves to get in. Um, Randy Orton, yeah. ser- serial candidate. We already kind of mentioned that he uh, hasn't done anything in the last year. So it'd be interesting to see if that has kind of test your theory, Adam, like if if people think his career might be over, he'll get some more votes despite really doing not literally nothing for to help his case. Um, Seth Rollins, who we talked about, CM Punk, who we talked about, Roman Reigns, who we talked about, uh, Trish Stratus, who remains kind of a confusing person that's still on this ballot, um, but she gets the 10% or whatever to, to stay on. So I think that ends this year. Oh, you think so? Well, no, and I, and ironically, she's like never done more. Yeah, she got a. I think she got eleven percent last year. Yeah, she's like right there. It's it's pretty incredible. But like she's actually wrestled with matches and stuff like that. She came back and oh yeah, was a regular. Like she actually has done a lot. You know, she yeah. That's that's true. That's true. She did do more. I don't know if it helped necessarily because she had. I mean, I guess that last match she had with Becky was good, right? But the ones before that were they had some pretty rough ones. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And yeah. then of course, uh, Rick and Scott Steiner. Um, oh like, man, if it. Personal Hall of Fame, yes, um, but I, I don't think again. It's just like picking the five best candidates, and they're like a team I want to vote for, but I really can't justify it. So, um, yeah, just uh, just can't quite pull the yeah, trigger. It, it, I was it, shocked they got over fifty last year. I think they're going to fall a lot yeah. um, this year. And it's it's incredible that um, I mean I mean it's okay to say. These guys, I think these guys are awesome and they rule, but they're not Hall of Famers. The Hall of Fame is very specific criteria that you kind of have to somewhat adhere to. And there obviously is personal opinion involved in that. But you can, it's it's not like, oh, like I hate not checking the box on the Steiners. Just like I'm probably going to hate not checking the box on the Briscoes. But if I feel like they don't match the criteria, I, I got to try to be like impartial in that regard. Um, out of this group, I'm, I'm only I'm definitely voting for Orndorff and the Young Bucks. Um, you kind of swayed me with your John Moxley argument, Adam. I'll have to give that more consideration. Um, and I could see I could be convinced to vote for the Briscoes. Um, I followed wrestling in Japan. Uh, the Beauty Pair. Uh, they're they're really interesting in terms of they're like super duper popular and they kind of paved the way for the idol. You know joshi tag yeah. team and future wrestlers so oh for sure for sure if they if i had a fourth vote i would vote for beauty pair um but you know again it's one of those situations like half the team is already in and yeah i'm Jackie trying to Sato kind of is already in so you're looking about and i'm trying yeah i'm trying to weigh that against like some other candidates that i feel really strongly about um yeah and, and, and they're and... just they, yeah. maki uida has like a three-year career i think I mean, her career is really short. It's very short. Yeah, which it is it, it, short. the real the, the interesting thing about the beauty pair is that they probably should have been inducted. Like Jackie Sato was inducted in 1996 as an original um, inductee, and you, they probably should have been inducted as a team then. Yeah, I mean, she uh, Jackie though has like her her solo career too, though. So I can I understand why Dave just inducted Jackie yeah. um, to begin with, but I think if he if he had the tag team, like someone can be in twice, both on their own and as part of the tag team back in 96, I agree. They they would have been in the inaugural class. Um, 
Kojima and Tanzan, a serial team that's always on here and the debate of whether they would be better as individuals or not. I, I don't think I would vote for them either. I could be sold on Kojima just because I'm a really big fan of his work. Um, yeah, but... I, I I hope they fall off this year and then Kojima can get back on as a single because uh, I do think there are some members of the Hall of Fame, um, specifically Akiyama and Nagata, that you can compare Kojima to. Um, okay, yeah. In terms of longevity and in-ring performance and, you know, they weren't exactly stellar draws um, either. Kojima was actually maybe a stronger draw than both of them at times. Uh, maybe not over the course of the career, but at least for, you know, a short time period, he definitely was. So, yeah, it's, um, I think he can definitely make a make a case for Kojima and maybe he gets added to the ballot next year. Yeah, uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara um, for you uh, grapple perverts out there. Uh, Hayabusa, who you talked about, Adam, uh, Inoki and Sakaguchi, who we also talked about, Tomohiro Ishii, um, Mikos, Miko Satomura, who I feel like, um, you know, it really depends on preference. Like, I know some people are, are going to be voting for her. I feel like her, Hayabusa, Shima, and Shingo, and to a degree, Ishii as well, kind of all have similar cases. And it really kind of depends on, like, whose in-ring style you like the most. Um, a lot of people... Or, like, you know... What promotion you're the you know biggest yeah. fan of? Well, a lot, and a lot important. of people will credit Sadamore for kind of keeping Joshi alive after it kind of collapsed in the early 2000s and really playing a pivotal role in training a lot of the women um, that are stars now. And I'll, you know, if you, if you haven't seen any of it, go back and watch her you know Gaora matches uh, in the early 2000s because they're really good. Like that's a, a very a great way to say to spend your time. Uh, if you haven't seen them, uh, Shingo, who we didn't talk about, but I am voting for. Um, I am I am also voting for Shingo. Yeah, we don't really need to have a conversation about that. Shingo rules. Um, He's amazing. Yeah. And then Manami Toyota versus in, in Toshio Yamada, another tag team where one of the people is already in. I mean, if you voted for them, I understand, but I'm not voting for them for the tag team reason. Yeah, um, mine's just I, I get it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. My the three I'm voting for are Ishii, Hayabusa, and Shingo. Um, just because I feel like they're just so great and important. Um, and yeah, you know, t- Toyota's already in uh, on her own. Yeah, I- I'm going to be voting Ishii, Takagi, and Shima, and hopefully one of them gets in because I would like to vote for Hayabusa um, at some point. Uh, I don't vote Mexico or rest of the world. I don't know if you do, Adam, or you want to shout out anyone. I, I, I do not either. Just the three areas I do vote for take up all my time researching, and yeah, I've just I, never been. Um, I've just I'm never a, been a huge lucha fan. I'm always glad that I don't vote in these categories because it just requires so much work and knowledge that I'm just like, oh, thank God I don't have to think about like Blue Panther being back on the ballot. <laughs> also, the Big Daddy discourse, I enjoy. <laughs> I enjoy just like sitting on the sidelines. Yeah, just and, I, you know, remove, eating removing popcorn. myself from that. Yes, Big Daddy. Yes. I mean, this is the year for Big Daddy. I think he needs at least fifty percent to stay on. So uh, we'll see if he makes it out. And then non wrestlers. All right, deep breath. Let's see if we can make it through here. Uh, Dave Brown, uh, Bobby Bruns, who I vote for every year. Um, I I also vote for Bobby Bruns. Yeah, Dave yep. is a big advocate for Bobby Bruns. For people who don't know, uh, he was a promoter in San Francisco area and a trainer, and he kind of basically just. Basically discovered Ricky Dozan from Sumo 
uh, trained him in wrestling and kind of led the first few tours that Ricky Dozan did in Japan and played a really historically significant role in helping Japanese pro wrestling take off the way that it did. And he's kind of been lost to history. And I think it's important for the Hall of Fame to recognize those people. Um, Bob Cottle, uh, famous announcer. Bobby Davis, uh, wrestling manager from the 50s and 60s. I wrote an article on Bobby Davis uh, that's on voiceofwrestling.com that I would recommend everyone to read if you're interested. I think he's probably the best candidate on this entire ballot. Um, he largely pioneered the role of the heat-generating manager, um, was involved in a bunch of big feuds, including the Rocca and Perez uh, feud, Um with the Boondogs in the late 50s. He was Buddy Rogers' manager when Rogers was NWA champion in the early 60s. Uh, not a super long career in wrestling, but a hugely significant one. Um, hugely influential to pretty much every single manager that's in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. So I highly recommend everyone consider Bobby Davis on their ballot. Um, I vote for him as well. That's right. You wouldn't be on the show if you weren't voting for him. Um, <laughs> Joe Higuchi, a longtime referee. You know, referees are hard because honestly, I feel like the the general public has no business voting on referees. I feel like that has to be like an inside the business idea because honestly, I have no idea who's a good referee or not. I, I struggle with that as well. Honestly, he's not one of the most um, compelling non-wrestlers to me to, to vote it, for. I feel like other some of the other people we're going to talk about and that we've mentioned are much yeah. more influential uh, uh, for the business. Jim Johnston, of course, is the famous composer. He did just a, a huge amount of WWF's music for the better part of 30 years. Um, he always gets well represented. I just can't, I can't pull the trigger on him, but I totally yeah, understand. Yeah, I, I, uh, Jim Johnston and Reg Parks, um, both, yeah. both of them are the best to ever the best ever in their field and it's not even like disputable um but uh i could see myself potentially voting for them in the future the problem is just i see and because we give over six non-wrestlers and i just see a lot of like very influential and historically significant non-wrestlers ahead of them uh, that i need to vote for first and hopefully some of them get in and then maybe there'll be people i vote for in the future yeah, like I, I, I like the idea, like of of recognizing those guys, but ultimately, I don't see what their their contributions to a wrestling promotion to be nearly as important as the contributions of some of these other people. I likened it to like if you were a a, a football team and you were you, you were drafting a, a new team, you wouldn't take like a special teams player first. It would be nice to have a good special teams player, but you would take a star quarterback or you would take a, a left tackle or a pass rusher or someone that was much more important. And it's nice to have good looking belts. It's nice to have good music, but would you rather have that or like a great booker or a great like heat generating manager? Like I'd much rather have those things than like these kind of um, tertiary aspects of the business. Um, how would you oh wait wait on that i'm gonna i'm gonna hit you with a tough question though how do you feel about uh adam benettieri going in the pro football hall of fame should he be in then or not it's kind of the same thing right i was thinking more like a special team or like a like a matthew slater type kind of guy uh okay okay yeah well one thing i'll point out with jim johnston though um that music that he made sold incredibly well um, yes there's a drawing in the early 2000s to this <laughs> And how much money has Reggie Parks made through replica belts? 
probably is quite a bit actually. I'll, yeah. I'll just put it this way. I can't like, I hadn't thought about that before. That's like a really good point on Reg Parks. But every time I see, every time I see one of the modern WWE belts, I think to myself, I really should vote for Reg Parks because <laughs> they're so bad. Yeah. His belts were so great. Um, Larry Matzik, who's kind of a jack of all trades kind of guy. He was a journalist. He was a booker. He was in the office in St. Louis for a long time. Uh, he's just a historian. He's just has a lot of um, kind of different hats in the wrestling world. Um, Mike Tenay is kind of like that too. Uh, Mike Tenay is announcer probably more known as an announcer, but also kind of a newsletter publisher and historian. And it's hard to recognize those guys because they weren't outstanding necessarily in one thing, but they were obviously big contributors to pro wrestling in a variety of different ways. Um, and so they'll yeah, always get, yeah. A, yeah, they'll always get I, a level I, of support. I love Mike today. I just wish he was so perfect as like the third chair in WCW. He was so perfect. I just wasn't as much a fan. I don't think he, I don't think he was a hall of fame level play-by-play um, announcer, but if he found a spot to be like the third chair commentator for like, you know, 20 years or, you know, as long as he um, uh, announced for, I think, you know, I probably would vote for him, but he he was just so great in that role, but just it wasn't, you know, at the same level as play-by-play, so that, that's why I don't vote for him. Uh, James Melby, who is um, kind of a historian and journalist, he's really best known for being, like, the uh, most prominent, like, designer of, like, wrestling um, programs uh, throughout the years. Uh, I, I don't, like, it's kind of, like, totally predates my time as a wrestling fan where, like, programs are really important, but I'm sure they were back, mm. you know, in the territory days. Uh, Rossi Ogawa, a uh, longtime Japanese women's wrestling promoter, a uh, very divisive figure in that field in terms of his contributions and what they are. Um, I've heard some people advocate very strongly for him. I've heard some people say that he actually hasn't really done that much. He just claims he has. And um, he, he, might yeah, the, it, he might be in the sleazy Carney Hall of Fame. It's It really comes down to what you believe with yeah. him. Because like, um, if you believe everything, then it's like, man, how is this guy needs to be? Yeah, that he like booked sure. '90s all then, Japan women and like, yeah. Um, when you hear when you hear the other end was like part of like you know like why the Crush Gals were so popular as well. He was like working on their presentation and marketing and stuff. But and then if you but then if you like hear the other side, it's like, ah, he really wasn't doing like that much during those time periods. And yeah, he did get some influence. It was a little bit more later when you know things were going downhill more um and then you know like the joshi scene wasn't nearly as successful for most of the time he was clearly in charge of you know different promotions mm-hmm. um until more recently with stardom so yeah there's a lot to parse with that and because of that i'm just like okay like i struggle with that and so he's he's not someone i vote for uh, right now uh more siegel who will never get in but i'll vote for him every year um Longtime Houston wrestling promoter from like roughly like 1920 to the mid 1960s when he died. Um, I've 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 talked about him a lot before, but I just think he's too old to really get enough of the vote. But I think if you look at like incredible longevity as a promoter, uh, incredible success, especially during different periods of time, especially like if you look at like their success during like the World War II years, it was either Houston or St. Louis was the biggest wrestling city uh, in the country in terms of drawing. Uh, pioneered certain things like the Texas death match and obviously Danny McShane who popularized blading was a big star in Houston uh 
Bill Longson, who's one of the all-time biggest draws in the history of wrestling, who most people have never heard of before, um, who popularized the pile driver and was like kind of like the preeminent like heel champion um, during like the World War II era, was a big star in Houston. He's just hugely successful promoter. If he should have probably been inducted in 1996, or Dave should just automatically induct him, but because he's appeared on the ballot before. Dave says it wouldn't be right to just induct him. So he's going to continue to get like 25% as people like rather vote for like Jim Johnson and Tony Schiavone instead. Um, I, I vote for him. Um, that's as right, well. Adam. Uh, I do. We'll, we'll see if I know Dave's talked about maybe changing. So he mentioned like a veterans committee type thing, which you know, I I'm don't anti think that. is I'm a good idea. That. Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea but, either. But I do think there's potentially a way to like have like split the category of like historical and like even older people to just make the voters of like the super old candidates like yeah there should be like a pre-1970 thing or something yeah i i think there's a way you could potentially structure it for that so anyway i'll i'll pitch that to dave at some point and we'll see, see what happens but i agree morris should um he should definitely be in tony shivani who i just buried um i like shivani i don't <laughs> think of him as a hall of famer um yeah I've, i i i feel similarly i like him um he man i kind of like I, I like him i kind of want to vote for him i do think he has a very unique career in terms of voting like um announcing for crockett wwf wcw and now aew um, well, don't forget about mlw oh the demo that never stops how could i um but yeah, it's a very unique career. Um, he just wasn't, he's just kind of overshadowed by Jim Ross who did all the same things. <laughs> so it's like, he has a very similar career to Jim Ross, just not quite as good and not for as long, but it is still a very like, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. He's interesting because he is still adding to his case. So we'll see, uh, you know, what happens over the next five years or so. Um, I could see him eventually getting in. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't anticipate that happening yeah, this you, year. I mean, you could argue he's having the best run of his career. He's certainly the most respected he's probably ever been. Um, yeah, I think so. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, George Scott, longtime Booker of Jim Crockett Promotions, and then later WWF, especially during the early days of Hulkamania and kind of the National Expansion era. Um, I vote for him. I think he's hugely significant. Um, the fact that he had success in two kind of very different territories with di very different formats. Um, I think he's a super pivotal figure in the history of pro wrestling in this country. And I think you should get in. Um, uh, Sanshiro Takagi um, from Japan, a uh, longtime independent wrestling promoter, uh, probably best known for DDT, but also um, is, I believe, the promoter with Tokyo Joshi Pro as well. Um, especially with his work with DDT, he's kind of created a, a really longstanding, successful independent wrestling promotion that has... Um, I don't know if it's really influenced a lot of pro wrestling. You could certainly argue that it has, but it has certainly shown that a different style of pro wrestling can exist in Japan. And uh, as far as like a promoter and a booker goes, has had remarkable durability, especially in modern times. Uh, it's He's definitely influenced the amount of exposure pro wrestling gets on the show Ridiculousness. Oh, yeah. If, that, if this was the Hall of Fame of, of, of that, then he would definitely be in. Um, Mike, today we talked about Ted Turner, um, really comes down to like how significant you think 
he is in terms of keeping wrestling on American television besides WWF. Um, obviously he played a huge role in, in keeping WCW afloat and kind of making it into as big as it was by, you know, buying the company. And um, even before that was a real huge advocate for pro wrestling on television. So um, it really comes down to like philosophically, like whether you believe that like a corporate executive that wasn't really in the wrestling business should be in the hall of fame um, or not. It's, it's, it's really yeah, that simple. I- I do vote for Ted Turner, and the reason I view him differently than I do someone like, you know, uh, like Nick Khan, who's been talked about potentially being added at some point, or um, on Pollock and Thurston, he mentioned like Bonnie Hammer as like the USA executive who uh, brought uh, Raw back to USA. Um, Mm -hmm. I see those people as just like business people doing their jobs for what was advantageous for them. And with Ted Turner, I think a lot of the decisions he made uh, were bad business decisions. And he did it just because he liked wrestling and was appreciative for wrestling, helping him build his business early on. And he had a loyalty to it. And just because he liked it um, and felt that loyalty to it, he you know, continually gave it opportunities that it probably didn't deserve. Uh, based on its performance and so because of that I think it's he's so critical to the industry and so historically significant and I think those contributions deserve to be recognized in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. All right uh, Roy Welch who is a promoter from like the 1950s and 60s really kind of helped found Memphis wrestling and wrestling in Tennessee um, him and Nick Gulas kind of were the pioneers of that. Um, I think he's a pretty strong candidate. I haven't decided if I'm going to vote for him or not. Um, I am probably going to use all six of my votes in this category. Um, But if you look back, he's not super well known, but if you look at just like how important Memphis wrestling was to wrestling and Memphis wrestling is kind of well represented, I think in the hall of fame um, from like the 1970s on. Um, But Roy Welsh really just probably deserves a lot of credit for kind of starting that business, uh, in that part of the country and really creating something that would become hugely influential and important and regionally very, very popular and successful. Um, but again, he's just someone I, yeah, I think, um, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I am going to vote for him for precisely those reasons. I yeah. Think I think his name value just isn't that high, but if you actually look into it, like what he did, you don't really have to look that far to be like, okay, this guy is clearly very important. Um, Stanley Weston, a magazine publisher, the Weston magazines were kind of like the first, Part, part of the first kind of style of like pro wrestling media that we had. Um, so we can thank him for that. Uh, and lastly, the Grand Wizard, Ernie Roth, um, longtime manager, probably best known in the Northeast, um, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Uh, big, probably the top heel manager in the 70s. You'd see the Hammer Lou Albano. And uh, really uh, interesting thing about him is that he was. Um, uh, Farouk, the uh, the Sheik's manager before he came to the WWF. And a lot of people yes. don't know that. A lot of people don't know that's the same person. And if you look at his work with the Sheik, which was obviously hugely successful as a box office job and he as a box office draw, and he was a huge part of the act. Um, and then his success in WWF, uh, as far as managers goes, he's had a really robust career and I think a very strong candidate. Yeah, I vote. He's my last um, non-wrestler that I vote for, and yeah, he's 
just like you said, the incredible longevity um, and success. And yeah, just one of the best managers ever. Um, yeah, they don't, there's no, really no managers that have careers like that anymore. Uh, but e even just within his time period, he's one of the most successful managers ever. And I think he definitely uh, warrants induction. Yeah. And, and for what it's worth, like in the Northeast, like people like my dad's age, like everyone knows who the Grand Wizard is. Um, he's got huge like name value. Um, but that's going to wrap it up. Uh, this might be the longest episode we've ever done, but it was worth it. And I knew it was going to be long anyway. So that's why I recorded at night, not the middle of my work day. Um, but Adam, you got anything else you want to add? No, um, I'll just say, you know, if you are interested in reading more about Hayabusa, um, I have like, a, you know, a column from last year um, that's up on Voices of Wrestling and kind of an addendum uh, that covers him a little bit more and the, the Will Ospreay um, tribute uh, that we mentioned a little bit earlier. So yeah, uh, you know, please check those out and uh, yeah, look forward to my next appearance uh, on this podcast. We'll see if I have to come back and uh, take the record back from Joe Lanza uh, after he maybe ties or surpasses me. So we'll see if that rivalry, uh, how long it goes for. Could, could be eternal. Yeah, it could be. Um, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Adam. I want to thank you for being on the show. I want to thank all the listeners. Um, I also want to give a quick shout out just in general. Um, there was a, a mass shooting that happened uh, yesterday in Lewiston, Maine. Um, and I... I mean, there's so many of them these days that it's hard for for individual ones to represent uh, to to really uh, feel impactful to us. Um, but this is the one that definitely feels like the closest to hit home. Uh, you know, I, I we joke some I joke sometimes that this is not a wrestling podcast; it's a New England lifestyle podcast. And um, I, you know, I have I've, I'm in Maine all the time. Adam, I know you're a, a native Mainer uh, yourself, and there's a lot of people I know that have connections to Lewiston. I know um, of a couple people that were, you know, kind of friend of a friend scenarios that were involved in the shooting. Um, and I just, I want to, I know that probably no one from Lewiston is listening to this podcast, but I just want to say uh, we're thinking of you here uh, uh, in Boston and uh, we as a society have to do a lot better because there's no reason people that are going out to play some pool at a bar or going bowling uh, should feel unsafe. And unfortunately that's something that everyone is going to feel now. Uh, so I just want to say that. Um, but uh, thanks a lot to everyone who listens. Um, I'll talk to you guys again in the future. Do you like wrestling trivia? Then check out the five-star match game, the pro wrestling quiz show. I'm Joe Gagney. In every episode, I grill three contestants with five rounds of power packed wrestling trivia. We have over 30 evergreen episodes in the archives covering WWE, AEW, Japan, Mexico, and much, 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 much more. Play along at home and check it out today.